the Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook, talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. We have got the Instructor Meganar. At least I think we have. Yes, I can see myself live now. We are live with the first ever Instructor Meganar. And uh, I'm delighted that it's finally come to this because it feels like it's been a long time in the making, but we are here now. So we're going to kick off in just a few minutes with the first uh, speaker, which is uh, as uh, Bob Morn, the lovely Bob Morn, who I've just realised we're actually the first ever guest on the Instructor Podcast. So there you go. So yeah, as I mentioned, we've got nine amazing speakers coming up. They're kicking off in a few minutes at five past six, and we're going to be aiming to do 20 minutes each. There's bound to be a few time discrepancies somewhere, so please bear with us. In fact, I'm going to take this moment moment to say that uh, I'm going to quote Stephen King, or at least butcher one of Stephen King's quotes, and say that for what is good about this Meganar, praise them. For what is bad about this Meganar, blame me. And you can't say I'm uh, being overly critical of myself, because Stephen King says that, and it's good enough for the King, it's good enough for me. But yeah, I am a little bit nervous about tonight, a little bit, because there's a lot of moving parts. It could go horribly wrong. I could have a power cut. This uh, My building seems to have a power cut every three months so that could happen i have contingency in place so if the worst does happen don't worry we'll get through it uh a couple of last things before we kick off so firstly i'm uh, doing it in the facebook group so please 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 use the comments use the comments in this post i want you to use them for a few things feel free to ask questions uh, a lot of the speakers are in the group they may be able to come and answer the questions not during the presentation but they'll be able to come back and use it then but what i'd like you to do it the most is i want you whenever you see something that informs or inspires you i want that in the comments so for example terry cook has just made this awesome example about stephen king I'm going to use this on my lessons. I want the guys to see that. You know, I want to see that when I go back through the comments because I won't be able to keep properly on top of everything throughout the next three hours. So I will be going back. So I want to see what inspires you, what informs you, because that's the the idea of this Meganar to inspire and inform. Um, but I think that's everything you need to know for this. Uh, as I say, it's nine speakers. Please give them some love. I'm really, really appreciative for all of them coming along and doing this. Uh, ultimate gratitude to those guys. Use the comments, as we said, but we may as well make a start. So let's bring in, um, here we go. Let's make sure I admit the right person. Uh, we can bring in the first guest, which is Bob Morton. And uh, it says join him. Uh, now, I should warn you all, actually, that whenever Bob joins, there is always a technical snafu. But we haven't got one today. It's always a technical oh. snafu. There's a technical snafu. Clap. Close it down. Close it down. Oh. Uh, well, that's a good start, isn't it? There's a reason why we got Bob on first. <laughs> to get it out of the way. There we go. Um, so, Bob, you are our first uh, speaker today. So uh, let's make sure that we can share our screen. So uh, do you want to share your screen and make sure that's working okay? And then as soon as that's working, which it looks like it is... Yep. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is I am going to stop my video so I can disappear. I'm going to mute myself and I'm going to let you take the, the role for the next 20 minutes, Bob. And when you wrap well, up, I'll just, come back and say bye. Just before you go, thank you for doing this uh, on behalf of everybody who's listening. Um, 
I think it's an amazing idea uh, and more power to you. And thank you for letting me be opening that once more. <laughs> oh, a bit exciting, isn't it? Well, uh, you are indeed a big name in the industry. So <laughs> no, I used to be, according to Mr. Benstead, used to be a big name in the industry. On, you've only got 20 minutes. Crack on. Right. <laughs> well, good good evening, everybody. You'll have to forgive the mess that is, is behind me, where we're living in this little tiny corner of the house while walls get knocked out and all sorts of stuff happens. Um, so I want to look at, at coaching. Um, I see a lot of coaching not done terribly well. Um, and there's, there's, there's mix-ups in people's heads about what it is, what it isn't, what client-centered learning is, and, and, and all the various things. And people think if you're coaching, you can't instruct. If you're an instructor, you can't coach. Well, I want to just have a look at what all these roles are and, and have a look at the best ways I feel uh, that certainly work for me of, of getting the thing to happen. Now, one of the big things that I hear all the time is that, well, I've got learners you can't do that with. Well, I used to just accept that, but I don't anymore. What I would say to somebody saying that to me now is, well, you've got learners that you can't do that with because you've not learned how to unlock them. Because what happens is they turn up for the lesson and then an instructor suddenly says to them, what do you want to do today? I'm like, well, I thought you'd decide that. So it's it's they feel like they're almost ambushed. So I've, I've put a post in the, in the, in the group about contracting i like to start all of my engagements with new new people that i'm working with with this well we set the scene what do we expect from each other um, and again when i asked that question to go well i don't know i thought i'd just turn up here and you'd tell me what to do and then i'd make mistakes and you'd fix them because that's what everybody thinks driving instruction is because that's traditionally what it always was you know that the test and all the instruction that went around it was all about a fault-based approach when now we're trying to develop skills knowledge and understanding so the Hermes report, the high impact approach for enhancing road safety through more effective communication skills, identified that coaching was the best way to do it, to put the learner at the heart of the process. Um, now, for me, I mean, coaching can be used for a myriad of different things, but it's, it's, for me, it's all about empowerment of the individual and getting them to own their own learning. To, if you like, to try and turn every learner into the learners we all love, the ones who come with loads of ideas, who are really engaged and, and immersed in the, in the process. We don't like the ones who are having it paid for by mom and dad and who don't really want to learn. We know how difficult that can be. So it's about turning them around. So let's have a look at just quickly at, at what coaching is and probably what it isn't. Now, there's lots and lots of roles um, that help inform, educate or train others, but aren't coaching. Um, for example, mentor, teacher, consultant, therapist, instructor. Um, now, a lot of these people use coaching techniques, but let's have a look at each of those in turn. So the mentor generally is an expert in the subject that's, that's being taught, if you like, or that's being developed. Um, so an instructor could be seen as a mentor. We offer solutions based on experience. They educate. They put the learning into the learner. And there's nothing wrong with that. The teacher, again, tends to be a subject expert most of the time. They ask questions that they already know the answers to. So they're trying to impart information and knowledge. They educate. Again, they're putting the learning in. So these roles see the learner as an empty vessel. 
And all we have to do is pour our righteous wisdom and knowledge in until that vessel is full. And that does work. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not really the way human beings learn. They do learn that way, but it's not the ideal way. Um, consultant, um, again, they tend to be an expert in the subject and they analyze the data or the situations. They identify problems uh, or they have problems identified for them and they recommend solutions. So again, we're, we're, we're putting learning in, if you like. Therapist, again, it's another, another role that works one-to-one. -one. They tend to be an expert, but they're dealing in the past. They offer solutions by fixing problems that they uncover. Um, not necessarily a good thing for driving instructors. We'll be laying them on the sofa and, you know, asking them to explain the relationship with their father. <laughs> but an instructor, which is what we are, we're expert in the situations that we're in and the things that need to be taught. We offer solutions based on experience, often on our instinct of what that learner might need. Uh, we educate, we instruct, we put the learning in. Um, since the, the advent of coaching in driver training, um, there's been lots of attempts by lots of instructors to do more coaching. Um, but it becomes hard. You know, we attend a seminar, a meganar, uh, a course, or we read a book and we think, yeah, that'd be great, that's good for me. And we set off on the path full of enthusiasm, but find that our enthusiasm gets a bit dented because we find that it's quite hard because we find there's quite a lot of students that just go, I don't bloody know. You're the instructor, aren't you going to tell me? Um, so it becomes difficult. We find ourselves instructing a little bit to sort of get things moving. And then because we're on familiar ground, we instruct a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And before you know where you're at, three or four months down the line, you're back to total instruction again. Or you're back to a situation where there's not enough coaching. We try and develop a hybrid. We need to be able to identify, are we instructing or are we coaching? Um, otherwise, it's, it becomes confusing for us and potentially for the learner. So if it's not those other things, well, what is it then? <laughs> this coaching malarkey. So the coach empowers people. Um, the coach helps people to identify goals, their goals. What would you like to do today? What would you like to get out of this session? What would you like to get out of the next five minutes? The coach helps people discover their own solutions and to formulate plans. Now, that doesn't mean you can't instruct if the learner's stuck. And they say, oh, I'm really not sure. I can't think of anything. What do you think? It'd be rude not to answer that question. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And instruction can form part of a coaching process. Well, okay, how about I talk you through this? Let's see what we learn from it. That's kind of okay. We help people measure the impact of the goals, the activities that we undertake, and then to set new goals based on that. This is one of the big failings for people on the part three in the standards channel. I want to just make that the focus, is that the lesson is not adapted and the lesson should constantly be adapted. Somebody asked me the question the other day, what happens if the lesson doesn't need adapting? Well, that's a really bad lesson because all lessons should need adapting because the pupil should be progressing or worst case, regressing. So there should constantly be a need to adjust because if you keep doing what you've been doing, you'll get what you just got. So something has to change. So we're not an expert as coaches, or we don't use the expertise. We are, as instructors, experts, of course. Um, but we're trying not to use that expertise. We're trying to help the learner 
on a path of self-discovery. Uh, we're not a guru. We're moving forward all the time. We're dealing in the future, not in the past. If you think about a fault-based model, that's always based on the past. Something that's happened, let's fix that. Uh, or we might prevent something, but then we're dealing with it after the event. Uh, we help people to develop, but we don't direct that development. Um, we help people imagine different possibilities for themselves and for the situation that's just about to come up. And we manage a, a coaching conversational model. Now, there's loads of different coaching models, but they're all based upon the same sort of thing, which is, you know, what do we want to do? Where are we now? How are we going to get there? Um, so coaching really is, is a relationship. It's the right environment for it to happen naturally. This is where contracting is important. What do we expect from each other? Um, and this contracting, you know, getting the right relationship can cure so many ills for driving instructors. You know, what happens if you're late? What happens if I'm late? What happens if I cancel? What happens if you cancel? Um, because traditionally, we're very bad at this in the industry. We, we've got some terms and conditions that say you must give me X hours or X days or X weeks notice. Um, but we don't enforce it. Somebody cancels a lesson and we're, like, mm, we're a bit miffed. They cancel a second time. Now we're properly miffed and we probably bring it to their attention that we're a bit miffed. And then they cancel a third time. So we now charge them. Well, the pupils now up in arms because we well, didn't charge me before. Why are you suddenly being a pillock? Why are you being awful to me? Well, oh, this is terrible. But if we had that conversation at the start and the parties involved in it, whether it's two of me, three of me, you know, I often involve the parents in this, then we've agreed what should happen in these circumstances. Um, so it's it's not a shock when it comes out. Again, what I would normally do is, because I want a great relationship with the people I work with, if they do cancel, it's generally genuine, I'll say, look, I could I could charge you. Remember, we're talking, oh, yeah, yeah, but this time I won't. However, if it happens again, I'll have to charge you for that one, but this one as well. Does that seem reasonable? So we're setting the goals for these people and for ourselves. Um, and like any relationship, whether it's, you know, between you and a learner or, or in real life or, you know, in love, um, meeting expectations is important. So if we get the relationship right, we can then have the right conversation, which will help us to identify goals and needs and to pursue and reach those goals that we've set, uh, working out what works and what does not. Now, obviously, in the beginning, you might get a lot of, well, I don't know. So rather than tell them, I would probably say, well, here's some things we could try. Do you want to choose one of those? So I'm inviting them into making that decision, and I'm making sure that it's non-threatening once, once they've made a choice. And you find that fairly quickly, um, I don't know, turns into what's my options. And that then turns into I've been thinking about this, and what I think I'd like to do is. Um, and because it's a non-threatening environment, they're more likely to be honest and open with you. You know, if we get the right relationship, a relationship of equals where there's no hierarchy, there's no judgment, there's no judgmental language, you don't use stuff like good, bad, better, worse. You know, it's it's fault is a thing we, we don't want to talk about. You know, what we have is an outcome that we're seeking and an outcome that we got. And the simple conversation is how do we turn what we got into what we want? Uh, can I help you with that? What level of help would you like? That kind, that kind of thing. So if we've got this relationship right, we're going to have the right conversation, which would then lead to the learner developing the confidence in themselves and their ability 
to make meaningful decisions in terms of their own development without the fear of you pointing and laughing, which is what they're probably thinking. And it helps the further towards ownership we can get, the better life is. Um, once the learner owns their own journey, they would then call the shots. Now, this does not mean, and this is another conversation I have regularly, so we can't just let them do whatever they want. Nobody said you should let them do whatever they want. We said they should be setting meaningful goals that are realistic, smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-framed. Have we got time and space to do that today? And if we haven't, it's the coach's job to say, well, well hang on a second. And to, to challenge, not to say, well, you can't do that because you're an idiot, but hang on a second, let's have a little look at the classic thing that's quoted to me is, well, what if it's lesson number two and they want to do more of it? Well, I would certainly say, okay, more of that's, that's that's on our radar, but how fast do we need to go on more Certainly, how fast have we travelled so far? Eight mile an hour. Is it sensible to do that in one jump? Then they may go, yeah, I think so. They say, well, well actually it's not, so we're not going to do that. So I would put my safety hat on and go, no, that's not happening. Um, and we would have a sensible conversation, which would lead to some different goals. We would maybe mark it down, motorways, we'll put that there. But what do we need to do before we get to that? Let's tackle those first. And, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who still says, yeah, but I want to still do it. Well, well no. <laughs> then, then, you know, you've not really set the boundaries right in that, in that relationship. So to be effective at this, now, sorry if I'm rushing here, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm cognizant of the fact that if anybody's going to run over, it's probably going to be me. There are three elements. A way of being, this is how we are um, and how we create the relationship, how we set boundaries, how we do the contract again, the things. A set of coaching skills, questioning, reading body language, all that kind of stuff, and then a coaching process. So our way of being, it's about creating the right environment. We must be non-judgmental. We must be honest. We must be humble in front of those that we wish to help. Empathetic, inspiring, and have an unconditional positive regard for the coachee. Something I very rarely see when I'm when I'm observing lessons is the as the the instructor or the PDI pulling somebody over to the side of the road and saying, "How was that? Who made all those decisions?" You know, and picking a moment where the learner's made all the decisions. Did I help you at all? No. Getting pretty good at this, aren't we? And then off you go again. So get used to stopping <laughs> when things have gone well. Um, and help to build their levels of self-efficacy, their, their belief in themselves. Some of their belief in themselves comes from conversations they have with us. So be positive. Our coaching skills, we, we help the coachee identify goals. Uh, and we develop their confidence in their ability to, to develop goals probably over a little period of time. So we, we ease them into it. We have to listen actively. Um, I see a lot of silence in cars, but it's not the, the instructor listening. They're just being quiet, waiting for their turn to talk. So they're not really listening to what's being said. And in fact, how it's being said. So we've got to tune into the nonverbal sites too. Um, we have to learn to trust silence. Something else that I don't see much of is time for learners to think, ask a question, and the rule should be, the learner breaks the silence, not you. Unless you're in a moving car, it's a safety critical situation. But just wait. If they're being quiet, they're just thinking. When they've done thinking, they'll speak. Now, it's uncomfortable to begin with, but 
the levels of thought that happen if they're allowed to just sit in clear blue thinking time is amazing. And some of the plans that they come up with will surprise you. Um, get used to paraphrasing and summarizing. So if I've got this right, this is what you want to do, and this is how you want to do it. Is that right? And you think we should be able to do that in this many attempts. Is that right? Nobody's going to say to you, yeah, that's what I just said. They're going to go, yeah, that's right. Or, no, no, what I meant was. So get used to doing that. Paraphrase, summarize, you know, repeat to them what they've said. Get good at coaching questions. Now, I hear lots of questions being used, but they're always designed to get a predetermined answer. Not always, but a lot of the time. So a coaching question should help you to develop knowledge and understanding of what's going on inside that learner's head, what the levels of knowledge and skill and understanding are. Um, so use questions like, how are you deciding, and then tag on, what speed to travel at, when to turn right, you know, where to, when to, where to position the car on their own, how much room to leave between you and the parked cars, whether to go or not at a roundabout. So, you know, how are you deciding whether you're going to go or not here? And then listen to the answer. Listen carefully. Um, help them overcome barriers to learning within themselves and sometimes external. But you know, they really do worry a lot about what other people think. You know, you always have these conversations. Well, my mate's had three lessons and he's done this. Uh, learn to inspire individuals. Um, and it's not just about you telling them that they're good. It's about them developing for themselves the confidence that they're good. Um, and then help them determine on what plans. What do you think the next logical step might be? Again, you might get a lot of I don't know at the beginning because your skills aren't developed yet or they haven't got the confidence yet. So just offer options. Well, we can do this, 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 or this. Choose one of those. Or you might say stuff like, well, learners at your stage would normally go sort of this route. Is that something you think you'd like to try? And when you get when you are giving information, because you know, if you're making the switch from instructor to coach, you'll do a lot of instructing still, because that's what you're used to. At the end, you preface it by saying, um, would would you like to do this? Or, you know, if you've said what we'll do is we'll do this, 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 and this, Ooh, you just instruct me to, if that seems like a plan to you. So it's it's important that we that we learn to act as a team, that we need agreement between everybody that's involved. So the process, contracting is important, um, but let's have a look at the, this is some of the models. There's grow, goal, reality, options, way forward. T, grow, which is topic, goal, reality, options, way forward. Oscar, which is outcome, situation, choices, actions, review. And clear, contracting, listening, exploring, action review. They're all about, here's where we are, what's our next step, uh, what's our options to do that, and what's the plan going forward. And if you think about it, the first two rows on the standards check on the part three format, did the trainer identify the learner's goals and needs? And the second bit is, was the agreed lesson structure? And that's the word that gets missed by an awful lot of ADIs agreed lesson structure it's not enough that you tell them what we're going to do and they agree that it's okay no <laughs> we need to 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 get buy-in from the learner to the process whoops too far so contracting i've put a post in the facebook group um feel free to ask me questions in the group um now i'm at a wedding tomorrow um and it's an all-day gig uh, so i'll be avoiding facebook because i'll be drunk um, but I will try and get to all the questions on Saturday. If we miss the, the deadline when it closes, I think on Sunday night, 
feel free to send me a message on Facebook or whatever. Um, so contracting is important. Get the buy-in. Um, help them to see that they have got the necessary skills and the wherewithal to set and achieve their own goals. So start small. Um, so if it's not working, it's you. <laughs> it is you. Uh, I don't buy this. I've got learners you can't do that with. No, you've got learners you can't do that with yet, and you need to work on yourself. Um, you haven't asked the right questions. You haven't asked the questions in the right way. You haven't got buy-in from the learner. Now, I do appreciate that there are some people uh, whom for life has just conditioned them in such a way that they're never really going to engage. If it is working, it's you. It's you again. It won't uh, I'm just going to have to give you a little nudge here, Bob. I saw that your screen came on, so I thought we yep. must be getting close to 10. I'm nearly there. <laughs> it won't work when they don't care or try. Um, they aren't given a chance. Or if you're attempting anything other than behavioral change, you know, it, it won't work in nuclear physics. But the skills that we're developing here or that we're using, we already have. We learned the skills we need to drive a car when we were toddlers, spatial awareness and manual dexterity. It will work when the issue is behavioural or, you know, attitudinal, when they're given a chance and when they're willing to change. So making it happen for you, it's a journey. So plot that journey out. There will be hard work involved and you will make mistakes. But perseverance will yield results, I promise you. So we'll, we'll not get into, into too much of the detail for that because that'll take me too long. So... If you find yourself using the skills of being a mentor, a teacher, a consultant, a therapist, or an instructor, you're not coaching. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do these things, but it does mean you should realize that you're not coaching and develop ways of not needing to do it going forward. Having said that, there are always situations where more skills are useful and probably the handiest thing just to reach for. Um, and in a safety-critical situation, you always reach for the safety-critical tool and do whatever's needed. I hope all of that's made sense. If it hasn't, drop me a question. If you want to learn a little bit more or attend some other stuff I do, at the bottom of here, clientcenteredlearning.co.uk forward slash courses, forward slash masterclasses. I'll be publishing some more stuff on there. Uh, and if you have questions, give me a shout. Awesome. Thank you for that, Bob. Uh, that last slide, that last slide clicked for me. I don't know why that one, but that one clicked for me. So, um, yeah, make sure, I know you've got to see beer, but make sure you go back and post in the group at some point, uh, links where people can find you if they want to get more goodness and that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, anyone that's watching this, make sure you give some love to Bob, tell him what you liked and enjoyed from that. And uh, go and enjoy your wedding, Bob. Yeah, it's not my wedding. <laughs> right, go and enjoy the wedding. Yeah, so, well, I'm, I'm playing at the wedding tomorrow. And then... Uh, at the reception in the afternoon. So I don't know how far into the evening I'm going to make it, but I'll probably right. be I'm going to have to kick you out now. Uh, no, no more information about you, but thank you for your time. <laughs> okay, so yeah, a big thank you to Bob there. Uh, only overrun by a few minutes. So I am going to bring in, without much more hesitation, uh, Elizabeth Box. Uh, so she is currently joining now. Uh, Elizabeth is um, amazing. Da, 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 da. There we go. Are we there, Liz? Uh, I think so. Can you hear me? I can hear you, but I can't see you. 
Let me just see what I can do about that. No problem. I'll just give you a little introduction while you're looking at that. Uh, so uh, the, the amazing thing about this, ah, there we go. Uh, the amazing thing about Liz Woodbox was the first time I ever uh, communicated with Liz was to drop her a message on uh, LinkedIn saying, can you come and do the Meganar, please? And that was essentially it. Um, and she was very kind and said, yes, of course I will. Uh, <laughs> and this is the first time we've actually spoken. So this is slightly, almost feels slightly rude that I'm now going to disappear and let you crack on. But, um, <laughs> That's fine. Do you uh, need to share your screen or? Yes, I do. I will just give that a go. I'll make sure I can do that before I disappear. Excellent. Uh, so I will disappear and let you do this. Uh, and uh, I'll speak to you at the end. You've got about 20 minutes. Great. Thank you. Lovely. Okay, so hopefully you can just see one screen. Uh, uh, like lots of people now, I work with two screens and then that sometimes confuses what's online, but hopefully you should just see one uh, PowerPoint screen in front of you. So good evening, everyone. Um, and thank you very much for the invite to come and uh, speak at the Meganar this evening. So my name's Elizabeth Box and I'm the research director at the RAC Foundation. So for those of you who haven't come across the RAC Foundation before, we're an independent charity. Um, we investigate the safety, mobility, economy and environmental and I think that's all of them, mobility issues related to roads and their users. Um, we're based at the Royal Automobile Club in Pall Mall in London, and we're historically linked to the RAC breakdown services that you'll be very familiar with. Um, and uh, But we are separate and distinct. So we, we run as a, a charity separately from the motoring services. So our job is all about translating data and research into policy. So hopefully some of that will be able to be quite helpful in the session today. So today I'm going to be talking to you about empowering young drivers, um, leveraging research-backed strategies for effective infrastructure support. So I've recently completed my um, PhD in transport psychology, where I designed and evaluated pre-driver education for young and novice drivers. So during my talk this evening, I'll be drawing on the evidence from that research and highlight some of the areas where I think would be really helpful for instructors like yourself to focus on. So um, in the talk this evening, I'm going to be going through the following. Um, so I'm going to be talking about young driver safety um, some of the research insights that I think are important um, for those in your role to, to be aware of. Um, and then talk about how instructors are seen within the research evidence and things that might be helpful there. I'll then look at how you can develop safe attitudes, perceptions and intentions within your students using some behavioural change models and how you might be able to support their decision making skills using some of the evidence based approaches that have been recommended. And finally, talking about evidence based signposting. There's a huge amount in the literature about what can and can't make young drivers safe. And as instructors, you're really well placed on your one to one coaching sessions that you have with young people to really put some of these key messages across. So I just wanted to um, highlight some of those. And obviously, you will be aware, I'm sure, of quite a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about this, uh, this evening. I just hope maybe there's one or two new things that you're able to take away from the session and, and use in your own work. So before I get started, I just wanted to alert you to several different reports that we've published at the RAC Foundation. Um, that you might have come across before, but if you haven't, you might be interested to take a look. All of these are freely available on our website, which is www.racfoundation.org. So please do feel free to take a look after the session um, if any of them pique your interest at all. 
So I just wanted to highlight um, three particular uh, of our most recent reports in this, this subject area that you might find interesting. So the first on that list is supporting new drivers in Great Britain. And um, this was a report we published last year, which was very much looking at the pros and cons of graduated driver licensing. So myself and one of the other authors on that report gave evidence to the uh, Transport Select Committee when they had the inquiry, you might recall, a couple of years ago now. And it was quite interesting that in that session, they obviously had sessions with with young people asking about what they thought about graduated driver licensing. And um, I think it had a lot of sway, actually, what young people thought. And of course, we need to bear that in mind. But we know from the research evidence that um, there's a huge amount of scientific weight behind what, uh, why graduated driver licensing is helpful. And therefore, um, we wanted to kind of put that all in one report. So if you're looking for a myth-busting report on that subject, that's the one for you. Uh, the one in the middle is a, um, a survey that we ran with young people with Ipsos Mori, which we published this year. Again, might be interesting for you because it talks about what young people think about their future driving prospects, both immediately and up to 2035. And I think the kind of key fact that came out of that is, young people want to continue driving for for a long time then they're, they're not going away anytime soon in terms of their want for driving so um that might be particularly relevant for your audiences as well and that final one on the screen is a article that i've published recently with my um supervisor for my phd which is all about the findings of the um cluster randomized control trial that we ran um as part of my uh, phd work um, this was very much looking at pre-driver interventions, so kind of even before they potentially start driving lessons, although some of them were at the driving lesson stage. And it was really looking to develop an alternative to many of the different programmes that you'll be familiar that are run in schools, often delivered by the emergency services, which look at um, providing consequences. They often use fear and threat appeal. And what I was designing and testing here was an alternative that was positively framed, kind of used youth development approaches and kind of took all of the sort of relevant theory of planned behaviour, background and behaviour change techniques and tried to develop interventions that are based on the fact of um, how we know behaviour uh, reacts. The, the kind of key key finding from that was that the intervention did have a small statistical effect that um, last up, lasted up to eight to ten weeks. Um, often interventions are small in their effects. And um, I think one of the key things here was that um, the research was actually found to be more effective than programmes of its similar type. So the recommendation is we need to be looking at doing more things like this. But again, all of these are, are freely available if you wanted to look at any of those in more detail. So um, firstly, let's have a look at young driver safety. So obviously, as a group, I'm sure you know better than anyone, all of the stats I'm going to go through um, now. So I won't spend too much time on this. But as you'll know, road traffic collisions are the leading cause of death amongst five to 29 year olds worldwide. Um, in Great Britain, um, they are involved in 24% of all killed and seriously injured collisions. But they're a much smaller percentage of license holders, so 7% of license holders. So they are an overrepresented group in the stats. And the evidence consistently tells us that all of the things in the word cloud are related to the risk taking within this group. And one of the key things is risk taking is firstly a product of age and experience. We know that when we look at studies looking at what happens with the risk likelihood as people get older and as people get more experiences, it drops off and it drops off quite quickly. So all of the interventions we want to look at, put in place are looking at how do we account for the fact that we know that all young people, no matter what their individual 
personalities are like are going to experience an age and experience risk. So we also know that novices tend to make more errors of judgment, um, which increases their risk as well. And this is partly a factor of their age. Um, and they're also more likely to have risky driving behavior. So a number of studies have looked at kind of elevated G-force rates in the first two years of driving. So again, this is related to physiology and the likelihood of risk taking within this group. They're also more susceptible to distraction. And when they're distracted by secondary tasks, such as using a mobile phone in the car, it increases their experience, uh, risk more than experienced adults. So we know they're at increased risk there. And the same is the case for alcohol consumption. So there are a lot of increased risks for this group. Now, as I said, personal characteristics like impulsivity, um, they do come into play. But what's really interesting is a lot of studies have found that personality and attitudes do not actually provide a consistent or strong explanation of young driver risk relative to things like inexperience, exposure, so the number of miles they're driving and risky driving behaviour. So, um, and I think finally, the other thing to, to bear in mind is we know that young drivers are passing their driving tests and they've still got skills gaps. Now, this is not physical driving skills, but this is around their cognitive thinking skills and also hazard perception skills. So there are areas that we could look at filling their gaps to kind of make them better prepared for that really risky period in that first um, part of their solo driving experience up, up until six to 12 months. So um, I just wanted to highlight to you some of the kind of research insights that have come across from, from some of the literature. And this is a interesting critical um, review that's been written. Um, you'll see the QR code on the screen. This was written a couple of years ago by the authors. And as often is the way from um, publications, uh, universities are able to put up the paper a few years after it's been published. So you can access this um, and, and download that free of charge from that link. And essentially, it summarised the road safety risk for young drivers, and it concluded overall that when um, young drivers don't have cognitive skills that are complete, so they have problems with visual scanning, hazard anticipation, um, handling of in-vehicle distractions, as well as their greater susceptibility to social influences, so from parents and, and peers, these were together the strongest determinants of young driver risk factors within all of the ones that they looked at. So I think it's really important to kind of put that into context of when we're focusing on things, we need to think about people's social environments and we need to think about their cognitive awareness skills. Um, I also uh, just wanted to... Um, highlight a, a piece that I put together um, a couple of, of, of years ago now. Um, and this is based on the educational design work that I've been doing as part of my um, PhD research. So this article uh, was published in lieu of the Young Driver Focus Conference, which we hold at the Royal Automobile Club every year. Um, during COVID times, it had to go all very much digital because we couldn't meet in person. And um, Really, the key point of this article is that road safety education programs, and here I'm not talking about the training work that all of you do, but very much the more general broad brush education programs you often get in schools. They've been found overall to consistently fail in delivering against their road safety objectives with little or no direct effect on collision risk. And when you look at the literature about why is this the case, often people think education is going to work. Well, why doesn't this work? And it's in part due to the design of the interventions. 
It's in part due to the fact that road safety education is competing with a large number of factors that affect individual behaviours. And as I said, social connections is important. The media, if you go off and deliver a one-off intervention, how effective is that going to be in comparison to all the other life factors that people um, are listening to? And um, overall, it concluded that, you know, future programmes need to make use of research and theories of behaviour and behaviour change techniques to really try and um, hone in on what we need to focus on with those groups. Um, we also need to be much more specific about what we want to achieve. You know, is there a knowledge gap that we need to fill in the first place? Often we assume information is going to do it. I'm, I'm sad to say that it would be wonderful if that was the case, but the literature shows you that knowledge on its own is not going to do it. It's an important prerequisite, but we need to do much more than that to achieve what we want to achieve in terms of improving safety. So as I've already mentioned um, from my own research, often pre-driver interventions when they're delivered at schools, they often have limited effects and short term effects. And some of the programmes have been found to have negative consequences as well. So there's a real issue about plausible mechanisms of harm and why we need to have more research in this area to make sure that we're not doing harm. Um, and I think overall, the research, the overall message coming out to public health is that we should generally stick away from fear and threat appeals. Um, they have what's called a boomerang effect. So particularly with young males, I'm much more likely to say what's called in psychology third person effects, say, well, this is everybody else. So I'm not going to be affected in that way and not actually taking those messages on board. We also need to think about engagement. Um, some of these really kind of fear and threat appeals, they get people's attention because, I mean, they would, of course, get your attention in terms of what's being talked about. But actually, what happens then is when you're um, emotionally aroused in that way, it's very difficult to take on board the information that's being provided to you. Equally, if you're bored to death by stats and figures, that's not going to engage you either. So it's trying to get something in that middle range. And that's what we need to be thinking about when we're developing interventions and engaging. So I think, and, and I'm sure you're all very uh, well aware of different youth development approaches and kind of using coping mechanisms and strategies. And that's very much the way the research is, is starting to take us. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the instructor's role and how that is currently um, seen within the literature. And um, I would say, you know, you can see in that circle, which is taken from that critical literature review that I um, spoke about taking a systems approach, seeing that the individual behaviours in the middle and actually that social microsystem. So they refer to it, you know, training is vitally important um, within that. So, you know, thinking through what how can driving instructors support um, in the best possible way based on what we see in the research? So I think one of the key things to say is you are clearly trusted independent advisors to parents and guardians and students. So you're really well placed to deliver high quality um, programs. You might have come across the Checkpoints program in the US. Um, as you know, in the US, they have in many different states graduated driver licensing. And as a result, they've often engaged with parents to say, what can you do, parents, to help make sure your students in the first few months of driving are not driving at night and not driving with their passengers, etc.? So the Checkpoints program was very much about developing um, parent teen driving agreements so that they could come to some sort of agreement in those first few months about what driving was going to look like. And there was a study done about um, 10 years or so ago, which found that actually when that program was delivered by driving instructors, it actually meant that there was more parenting agreements that were agreed. There were greater restrictions on high risk driving and less high risk driving occurred. So that kind of shows, I guess, you as an important delivery point for some of those um, kind of key 
uh, interventions. Um, obviously, supporting the development of cognitive skills. We've obviously already spoken about how vehicle handling is obviously vitally important, but it's the development of um, those cognitive skills that is also really key for actually future um, safety on the road. So visual scanning, hazard perception, road awareness. And we know from existing research that, as I say, in road safety research, often you don't find a lot of effects when you test things. I mean, hazard perception is, is off the scale in comparison to everything else we look at in terms of being able to teach those skills and actually bring up novice drivers um, hazard perception skills to those of experienced drivers in quite short spaces of time. So as much as you can do to encourage them to I sit in the vehicle when they're a passenger, when their parents or peers are driving and actually looking at for those hazards um, or, or doing the online um, skills beyond what they're already required to do would, would be absolutely great. I would say on commentary driving, some of the research shows that actually that's a really hard thing for learners to do. They're not quite cognitively ready for it yet. And that can be detrimental to safety. So probably best to stick away from from that, certainly in the very, very early stages. Um, and finally, providing teaching that's difficult to get by other means. Um, I mean, research has found that parental instruction tends to sit within what they call the safety margin strategy. So it avoids the most challenging aspects of training. So you kind of need both forms of instruction, don't you, to complement each other. The importance of having parents there to get the sheer number of hours on the roads, which people often can't afford to, to pay for um, through instruction wholly. Um, you might be aware that in Australia, 120 hours is recommended. It would be very difficult for many people to pay for that numbers of in instruction. And I know often there's a concern about, well, will they pick up bad habits and affect their tests? Well, that, that's potentially a different issue. But we know number of hours on the road is really important to get that experience. And um, as much as you can do to kind of provide the teaching that is relevant and, and stretching for them in your time with them, the better. So um, I'm sure many of you are very aware of the driver, um, uh, the GDE matrix, the driver education goals. And um, an Australian study a few years ago showed that in driving instructors provided much more higher order instruction uh, than parents. Again, showing that importance of, of your role versus that of parents. And, um, you know, you, looking at the driver, uh, the GDE matrix, thinking about goals for life and skills for living, that was where parents are much less likely to focus. They were much more likely to focus on those, those vehicle um, manoeuvring skills. So thinking through into, well, how do you use perceptions and intentions? And I thought I would talk through um, the theory of planned behavior. This is one that I've um, used very much in my own research over the last few years. Um, and it's it's used across psychosocial interventions. Um, and essentially, it theorizes that our attitudes and our subjective norm and our perceived behavioral control influences our intentions and our behaviors. So our attitudes are very much around what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing something? Do we like or dislike something? Thinking about subjective norms, it's very much about whether people approve of your behaviors or not. And control beliefs is actually um, and perceived behavioral control is whether um, people feel that they can actually enact a behavior or they feel they're more or less likely to go through with behavior in a certain circumstance. So behavioral models are often quite impenetrable in many ways, but hopefully you're able to see within this one kind of what the role of, the important role of, of driving instruction 
is and I would say kind of looking at it from from that perspective it's very much about informing learners about the advantages and disadvantages of specific behaviors so feeding into the attitudes um also about your disapproval or approval of certain elements of driving and how um students should behave on the road you are a what is classed a credible source of information and it's really important to kind of make good use of that and um also the role of making sure that students can feel like they are able to control the situations they're in and you know you don't want to veer into overconfidence that becomes slightly challenging as well because overconfidence leads to um yeah people not acting necessarily in the safest sort of way but ensuring they have ways in which they can manage the situations they're going to find themselves in in the future so thinking, and, and I think the earlier speaker was also talking through some of the kind of different ways in which we can kind of frame this and different methods. Um, one I really like is the what's called implementation intentions or if-then plans. Um, you can see on the screen one that I used uh, specifically when I was designing DriveFit, but it's one we're very familiar with of like, if you've been driving for two hours, then stop for at least a 20-minute break. Um, that's a very common one that it kind of becomes a bit of rule of thumb, but that's quite important, particularly for young people when they're taken away in the moment, they've got all their physiology they're dealing with. If they've actually agreed in advance what their plan is in a cool, neutral environment, they're much more likely to follow through with it when those circumstances arrive that they've identified is going to be challenging and more likely to follow through with that. Um, there's a link on the screen to a guide for developing safe driving plans that I put together for DriveFit. It doesn't just deal with speeding. It deals with fatigue, um, uh, drink and drug driving, a whole load of different um, potential if-then plan options that you might find useful um, in your work. There's also been another um, variations of this, as we heard from the earlier speaker. This is one called WHOOP, which is um, from one of the American academics that has been very um focused uh, on in their whole research over the last 20 years in this field but it's got a huge amount of empirical backing across a large number of public health areas and um you know let's take this as an example in in the road safety space so your wish could be not using a mobile phone because the outcome is you want to concentrate on driving and get to your location safely so what are the obstacles and i think this is really why your one-to-one -one coaching is so important because an obstacle for Amy might be different for an obstacle for John. So it's kind of working through, is it because you're FOMO, you're worried about missing out with what's happening? Is it because you're waiting for an important call and that's when you're tempted to use your phone? And then it's thinking through about what that plan would actually look like and how you would enact that in, in practice. So again, there's a link on the screen there of quite a lot of the evidence around um, kind of how that works and how you might be able to use it in your, your own work. So um, finally, before I include, uh, conclude, and I hopefully I haven't oh, I've gone on a little bit, sorry, I'm two minutes over, I'm, I'm almost there. Um, I was thinking about what are the evidence-based um, things that you could signpost to as, as instructors? And, um, you know, these are, these are four that I think are really, really important. We've already talked about hazard perception and prediction, getting as much um, practice in as possible in that novice driver stage is absolutely crucial. The evidence shows again and again how important that is for future um, driver safety. So as much as you can promote that, the better. 
as much as you can promote on-road um, practice and experience, I know sometimes this is challenging because you'd get the, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Um, but this doesn't does have to be with you. This can be private practice if people do have access to parents, guardians or other supervisory drivers. But to really get much more than that 45 hours, we want them to get much nearer that 100 hours to keep them uh, safe in the future. Vehicle and insurance choices. Um, research has shown that if you can put young people in vehicles that are less than 10 years old, if they are involved in a collision, obviously their outcomes are going to be so much better. Um, and so if you can encourage them to try and buy, buy the best, best possible vehicle in their budget as possible, that is great. You Using Euro NCAP and other sources to, to recommend um, different approaches. Insurance choice. I mean, a lot of young people have to go for telematics insurance now. It's the only viable choice for them. But that does provide the coach in the car once they are solo driving and has been shown to have some uh, positive beneficial effects. So, again, that's something that can help keep them safe in the future. And then post-test driving. Obviously, in the UK, you pass your test and you, off you go. You can do as you please. But as we know, graduated driver licensing, it's the restrictions at night and with passengers that really keep young people safe in those early stages because it ensures that they build up their experience in the least risky situations. So as much as you can encourage them to think, what are you going to be doing at night? Maybe you can just take that one the friends for the first month or two months um try, not loading up your your uh, car with a load of passengers straight away helps give you the confidence you need um, and the skills you need to be safe later on okay so in conclusion um clearly you as instructors have a really important role to play and thank you very much for the invite to come speak to you tonight hopefully i've um, highlighted a few things that either piqued your interest or you haven't come across before um, you know, you're a trusted source, um, you can support their cognitive skill development and you help them think about those higher GDA matrix um, issues and you provide teaching they don't get by other means. So please carry on all of the good work. The only thing I would say is if you can promote any of the evidence based actions that I've highlighted as much as possible, that would be great. And also in engaging with young people, and I'm sure you do a lot of this anyway in the coaching approach that you take, but positively framing things, thinking through coping mechanisms and strategies. And as I say, thinking about hazard prediction, on-road practice, vehicle insurance purchasing, as well as that decision to drive at night or with passengers. So thank you very much. Um, I'm very happy if there are questions um, to, to pick them up, or you're very welcome to drop me um, a note either on email or on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for, for the invitation to speak. Uh, delighted to have you on. I know there's a lot of it, uh, what's the word, activity in the in the chat. So, you know, feel free to go and dive into that later on. Uh, and I think people are, are keen for you to share for links for this stuff if you can as well. Right. Um, the one thing I'm going to chuck in quickly is that the problem with these sorts of presentations is I now want to do another 30 minutes asking you questions about it. <laughs> However, that's what a podcast is for. Nods, nods, wink, wink. Um, that's like one in the game. Uh, okay, yeah. No, big thank you, Liz. Uh, really enjoyed that. Fascinating stuff. And uh, I'll say this a few times tonight, but... I love the fact that that people like yourself from who are specifically in the industry are coming in to to provide this stuff for us. It's uh, I've said it a few times, but informative and inspiring. So you know, thank you very much. Great, you're very welcome. I think collaboration is key, and we will bring something slightly different to it, don't we? So yeah, thank you for the invite, and yeah, happy to continue to engage going forwards. Excellent. Thank you. No, I'm going to kick you out. Excellent. So a uh, big thank you to uh, Liz Box there. Um, 
we are just bringing in our next one. You can probably tell that we're running a bit behind at the minute, and I don't think that's a bad thing. We're getting more uh, quality from people, uh, which is always a good thing. Uh, so the next guest coming up is uh, Sophie, who is listed as Sophie Bailey, but is no longer Sophie Bailey. Uh, hold on, uh, Lydon? Is it Lydon? Lydon, yeah. Lydon, there we go. Uh, so I'm going to throw straight over to you, Sophie. Uh, do you want to check that you can share your screen okay? Yes. Can you see my screen? We can indeed. And um, I will let you, I will disappear and let you crack on. And if you can finish any earlier, you are more than welcome. But I don't <laughs> want to put you under pressure. You can take your 20 minutes if you need it. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, I'll get started. Um, so um, my name is Sophie Lydon. And yes, it is different to my name. I got married a few weeks ago, so I'm still getting used to the whole um, the fact I'm alive and now I'm not a Bailey. Um, today, I'm going to speak to you about garage anxiety. Um, so a little, little introduction to who I am. Um, I am a garage owner from Morecambe. Um, I have a family business with my parents and my sister, and we take pride in keeping our community safe and from this it has stemmed for me to have a passion of protecting their community giving the best advice we can and giving people the best advice on how they can get the most money out of their tires out of their vehicle and basically since having my children as well I think it's stemmed a lot more for me to share more information about safety, road safety and things like that because I take pride in keeping my kids safe and I think everybody else should as well. So garage anxiety, what actually is garage anxiety? So it's not actually a mental illness, it's just the perfect term for what I see on a daily basis and that is uh, a person that comes to the garage and they have the fear of the unknown almost, they don't know how much they're going to have to spend they don't actually know what is wrong with their vehicle and they are in your hands. And most of the time in the garage industry, we have a perception of being con men or um, being the people who make up prices, take lots of money off people. And that is not true if you go to a decent garage who, like us, are a family business and strive to keep their community safe and just generally are out there to be nice people. Um, so... Garage anxiety is definitely been heightened since the pandemic. Um, people didn't go out as much. So when they started to go out, they found that the cars had actually worn down a lot more than what they would have done because they were kind of stood. They weren't driving them. Cracks appeared in the tyres. Mechanical components had slowly kind of deteriorated. So this meant to uh, more money needed to be spent on their vehicles. And... I think this has all led down to people being really negligent towards the vehicles. So I constantly promote the fact that garage anxiety is a thing because I see so much of it and I'm starting to see more of it now in the younger drivers and the drivers who are just passing their tests. And I think a lot of it stems from the parents. Um, I think a lot of it stems from probably like memes on social media where people show things like oh just crashed my car how funny is that or just got a blowout how funny is that 
So it leads then to the younger generation being more negligent. They don't really care about what goes on with the vehicle. They don't really care about the tyres. And that leads to neglected vehicles, which unfortunately end up causing issues on our roads. So I hope I've explained that well enough. Um, I have very bad ADHD and dyslexia. So if I read anything backwards on my presentation, then that is why. And I do go off on tangents. If you listen to the podcast that I was on with Terry, you'll understand. So how can you help? So I know most people watching this will be driving instructors. Um, the best thing I can say for you to do to help prevent garage anxiety is to just basically start off from scratch. So all the different behaviours that I see out of drivers has always probably stemmed from I'll switch that back. Um, it stemmed from a possible like influence from a parent, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a foster carer, that kind of thing. And that slowly gets set in their brains of this is how I'm going to act because that's how my dad used to drive and that's how my mum used to drive. So I think as driving instructors or as anybody who has an influence over people who are just learning to drive, the best thing you can do is bridge the gap between them learning to drive and go into a garage so for me it is taking your students to a garage if you have a reputable garage that you trust then take them there you trust them you go there for your tires you go there for your um, services and things like that take them to the garage that you trust and introduce them to the garage managers the garage owners and make them feel like it's a comfortable zone because that is what the whole thing around garage anxiety is they're worried about where they're going they're unsure about the environment that they're going into so therefore they just don't go they turn the music up in the vehicles things get worse they ignore the tire pressure lights they end up running it flat and have to call out the aa which causes even more anxiety within them so giving them that familiarity of a zone of the people it would just help so much we do um uh ladies nights we haven't done them for a long time and it used to work really well and we did like an evening where we invited 30 women down to the garage we showed them how to change a tire we showed them how to check the oil the water the tire pressures and lots of different things just to make them feel more comfortable to make them feel more comfortable coming to our garage and to then be familiar with us and a lots of those people who have come on our courses now come back and have been customers of ours we've been open 26 years so they've been customers for a long time now so the thing I'm trying to start with Fresh Drivers UK which is how I campaign for road safety is through my Fresh Drivers UK campaign I'm trying to encourage the garages who are showing the keen interest in road safety in tyre safety um, and things like that I'm trying to encourage them to do a learner driver night so basically you could take your students there they would tell them how to change a tire check their oil pressures and things like that and basically set them up for their journey of driving and they find a garage that they feel comfortable with because they've been there for this evening and things like that so the best thing is to take them to a garage they're familiar with or even help them in what to say so which is through my social media channels is how I'm trying to help you guys. So I use Twitter or X now, whatever it is, which is like the worst rebranded in the world. 
uh, Instagram and I use LinkedIn and through these different social media channels I always post different content so this is one thing that I'm working on at the moment which is check it before you wreck it um, and that is basic information on how to check your tyre tire pressures how to check your tyres in general just to keep you safe so by directing your younger drivers to me or to tyre safe which is another great organisation which helps you um, with lots of different information about how to check your tyres then doing this sets them up it makes them more independent and it helps them feel a lot more confident so therefore when they're excited and confident about knowing what to do with the vehicle the more likely going to be the ones that look after it so I create different infographics quite often and if there's anything you would ever want in specific of an infographic then I'm more than happy to work with any of you alongside to do that um, I also do different campaign videos so this video here is me talking about overpressured tyres and I mean you can see on the screen this is just a few of the I think I'm in the way on this one I don't know if you guys can see this but there's like the one in the top corner which looks like a dollop of rubber that's an illegal string repair I actually took that off a car today and she just had that blowout on the motorway she was 18 she just passed a test she knew nothing about tyres and was absolutely distraught because she'd had this blowout on the motorway and knew nothing. And all it took was me to be, you know, down to her level, familiar with her and just say, look, it happens to everybody. Not everybody knows about tyres, but this is why this has happened. This is an illegal string repair, blah, 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 blah. Um, and she left away feeling really happy. And she said, oh, if I need anything more, I'll, I'll come back to you. So just from being informative and from helping them feel like they've been seen is the one thing that I'm trying to encourage people in the garage environment to do so that you guys can go there and take young drivers and then therefore they're independent. They don't have to rely on the mums and dads. They don't have to rely on, on anybody else. They can basically start driving and everybody knows that they'll be safe because they know in the back of their minds, this is what we need to do. Um, the top video is the videos I do every so often. So that one's about overpressures. I just did one about underpressures. Um, I've just been out with National Highways recently and talked to them about what they deal with on a daily basis. And I'm doing a video for that. That'll be out at the end of this month. I've just been asked by Tire Save to start working alongside them for campaigns. There's going to be a lot more for that. And obviously, this is all free. I don't charge anybody for doing any of this. I'm just very passionate about keeping people safe and keeping people educated so anything I use please share it please share it everywhere and if there's anything in specific that you would like me to make videos on or you know just anything to help you bridge the gap like I said with your drivers to the garage environment so that they are more confident then you just have to drop me an email drop me a message and there's literally I'll do I'll do anything because I'm just so passionate about it so obviously I said I use my Instagram, which on there you'll find different information. Um, I'm trying to aim to people within the young drivers industry. Obviously, it is quite difficult because young drivers don't really like to speak about road safety because they think it's boring. So I'm trying to do different things that makes it more interesting, creating reels, creating things with my son, Jackson, um, and just things that are like relatable. Um, I'm on a brand new journey with this content creation. This is brand new to me. I use Twitter and my main thing that I use is LinkedIn. And on there, I have lots of connections. 
lots of different things with people that we can basically work on different projects together to support people like you to help you bridge the gap like I keep saying I feel like I've gone completely on a tangent and I forgot what I was talking about to be honest but I think this is the end of my presentation I can't remember what else I put in it you've probably all got lots more questions to be honest 20 minutes for me is very small for me to try and explain everything that I do because I do so much um, I'm hosting a free road safety event if any of you are in the Morecambe or the northwest area um, I'm hosting a free road safety event at the Morecambe Football Club, the Mazuma Stadium. That's on October the 22nd. And it is just basically a day of different people within the road safety um, environment, like fire, police, national highways, um, blood bikers and things like that, just coming together to create a free day, different activities for kids, young drivers, just to basically share a subliminal message I guess of road safety and and get them talking about road safety um and yeah I think that's all I've got to say because I don't want to run over and I, I was recording myself and I switched it off by accident so I don't actually know how long I've been speaking for now <laughs> I think um, you've probably... done about 15 minutes and brought us back almost on track which is great well we'll leave it there and if anybody's got any questions this is my email my email address well, that was my email address if you need anything, drop me a message on social media. If you want to ask any more, you want to have a phone call, whatever, about Garage Anxiety in depth, ring up, we can con connect and we'll have a proper conversation. I don't usually do things like this, webinars and public speaking, so I'm all over the place. But Terry knows I'm just a very bubbly person that's got lots of different ideas. So. <laughs> Well, uh, you're not in the Facebook group because you're not on Facebook, so you no. won't see some of the lovely comments we're getting, but I will send them to you. Uh, and for anyone watching, uh, if you do want to get in touch with Sophie, I'll put her details in the Facebook group after. Uh, probably not tonight because I'll sleep, but tomorrow I'll put them in the Facebook group. Uh, but uh, I will just say that uh, Sophie always responds to me. And there's lots of people that you get in touch with and they don't. They can be a bit blase, a bit dismissive. Sophie's brilliant. And I just want to take a moment. And I know that Sophie's brought them back on track and now I'm putting us back <laughs> off track. But how awesome is it they've got people willing to do what Sophie and Liz and a couple of the other guys coming up later on are doing? They're not in our industry, but they're willing to come and help us. You know, we, we complain a lot, and rightly so, about the help we get from above. But we've got these people at the side of us that are willing to help. So, you know... There's a lot of love for you in uh, in the chat, Sophie. And there's a lot of love for you over here as well. In fact, last thing I'll say before I kick you out, uh, you're one of those people that when someone says to me your name, I go, oh, I love Sophie. Uh, you're, you're on that list. <laughs> oh, thanks. But, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Have and a great gonna... night. Enjoy the Megana. Uh, yeah. Thank you for today. So, yes, a uh, big thank you for Sophie who got us back on track before I started taking us back off track again. But we are now joined by, uh, or we will be joined in a second, by by Stuart Lockery, um, who is, oh, there we go, bright coaching. We've no Stuart, but we've got bright coaching. Uh, so I'm sure he'll be on the screen in a second. There we go. Um, so uh, let's jump straight in because I've put us back behind schedule again. Uh, do you want to make sure you can share your screen? Okay, Stuart. Oh, there we go. He's on it. Look, we've got people that know what they're doing rather than just me waffling away. Um, right. I'll disappear and I'll let you crack on. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, Terry. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thanks to the speakers who have uh, been on before. Very interesting stuff so far. 
Um, I just want to make a quick note before we start to say thanks to Terry um, for inviting me on to the, 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 the Meganar. The, the first time I met Terry was at the Kempton Park ADINGCII conference. And he was I was um, manning the PDI stand along with Lou Walsh. Um, Terry was about to go up and do a, a live recording of his podcast with Chris. And Terry, I'm sorry, you looked absolutely terrified. Um, and I really felt for you. But you pulled it off and I really respected you from, from that moment because you put yourself out there um, outside of your comfort zone. And I, I just really respect you for that. I think what you're doing in this industry is fantastic. So thank you. Um, a quick intro um, for the people who don't know who I am. My name is Stuart Lockery. I'm an ADI and a trainer. I've been doing that for about 15 years. Um, my main gig at the moment, the thing I'm working on, spending the most time working on, is I'm the founder at Bright Coaching and um, we're a training company. I will talk a little bit more about Bright Coaching at the end if Terry doesn't kick me out for running over time. I'm also the head of engagement uh, for the ADINGC, one of the national organizations. And I'm the owner at Caledonian Driver Training. We won recently the Regional Driving School of the Year for 2023. And I'm also the co-owner of LDS Driving School down in St. Albans. I should have mentioned Caledonian is Glasgow and Edinburgh based. So that's a little bit about what I do. Um, Terry asked me to be the, the PDI guy, I think was the way he put it, um, when we were talking about the, the Meganar. Um, and he mentioned about the, the transition from PDI, pink badge, to fully qualified. So Bob has spoken very eloquently about coaching, and Liz was absolutely phenomenal about the kind of stuff that really gets me going in terms of driver psychology and behavioral change. I want to just dial that back a little bit. I think it will work quite nicely, um, because if there are PDIs who are watching this either tonight or back on the recordings later on, um, I think, and this is nothing against Bob and Liz, I think a lot of that is going to be um, stuff that you're not aware of and you've not heard of before. Kudos to Terry for just bringing that kind of stuff in here. So I just want to lay out a little bit of the, the, the lay of the land, the context about what the current state of play is with the DVSA and kind of professional driving instructors, fully qualified driving instructors um, across the country, because things are not great right now. You know, We, we all recognise that, I think. I want to talk a little bit about what problems um, exist and are arising as a result of um, the, the context, the underlying context that we have. And then I want to finish on some more positive stuff, obviously, about what solutions and opportunities exist. Again, in particular for the PDIs who are going through their training just now um, or who have recently qualified. So the context as regards the DVSA, these are issues um, with the DVSA. I'm only going to mention that there's a very quick slide. Okay, we, we all know about this stuff. We know that the test waiting times are an issue. We know that the DVSA have staff recruitment issues and retention of staff issues. We know that staff training is an issue. We know that the DVSA has low credibility within the industry. And we know that there's a low understanding of its role among the general public. That's all I'm going to say about the DVSA except for one thing that I want you to remember. It is, you, you have you have control, you have the choice about how you choose to react to these things that are going on. And what I see at the moment in my job as owner of a driving school and occasional sufferer of um, the health sites of social media is that we're not dealing very well. There's, there's an awful lot of people not dealing very well 
with um, their kind of emotional responses to this, uh, the, the, this this thing that's going on at the moment with the DVSA. The context for ADIs, so that that's that's the DVSA, but ADIs, you you guys have some issues as well. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, some of it within your control, a lot of it out with your control. We know that the qualification process to become an ADI from PDI to ADI is very, very stressful. We know that it costs a lot of money. We know that um, the qualification process can be made more stressful through various factors, such as poor quality training. We know that that exists in our industry. We know that, um, in my experience, there is actually a, a poor understanding of the qualification process on the part of a lot of PDIs. So a lot of PDIs are not doing enough research when they sign up to join to become driving instructors. Training companies, and I include my own company, um, companies in this, we, we, we've not always, or some of us are not, are still not providing honest, um, honest advice and guidance about how stressful this process can be. Because I think a lot of people um, come into this industry who are not prepared for that. They're not prepared for the stress of leaving a job and going on a trainee license, despite the fact, I, I, I hope that every trainer is advising people not to do that. Um, we also have inconsistencies in marking, which I could kind of refer to with the previous stuff about the DVSA. Um, that can cause some, some stress. Bob's referred to things about um, issues with coaching and client-centered learning and instruction. There are issues where we have the DVSA not fully understanding some of the coaching process that the trainers are providing. And obviously, we have nerves and stress around the qualification process as well. As I referred to earlier on, this is a new job, a new career for many people. Some people have left jobs um, and to find out that there's a real opportunity that they won't make it at the third attempt. Um, it's, it's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling for PDIs and for trainers as well. And I can speak from experience there. The other issues for ADIs, um, because we work on our own so often, we have limited positive networking opportunities. And I use that word very, very deliberately. Um, what this means is that we have an over-reliance on things like social media and the kind of test center culture, where things don't tend to be as positive as they are on, on, on Terry Cook's podcasts, for example. Um, I remember very well being at the test centre when I was, I was a full-time driving instructor. I'm still there frequently as a trainer. And there is still um, this, this culture of why, why do I need to get more training? You know, I, I, I've passed my part three test um, and get learners through the test easily. Um, surely that means that I'm licensed to do my job. I know that I know everything I need to know. And it's just that really kind of negative, um, closed kind of, a closed approach to learning and development um, that can be harmful if you are only getting that as your one point of view. So if you find yourself stuck in Facebook groups and you're, you know, reading these Facebook groups and saying, you know, that's that's that sounds really rubbish, but I'm not seeing anything else around, please be assured that there are loads of things around like Terry Cook stuff, like the ADINGC, like the DITC. Um, and, and loads of things like kit, the kit guys are going to be on later as well. So find find a better tribe um, and that will expose you to all the other opportunities that are available. Um, the other contexts um, in terms of the industry at the moment are the, you know, fortunately high hourly rates. 
finally, we are earning the the, the, the salaries, the hourly rates that, that that we are due for the amount of effort that we put into this job job for the um, the risks that we take every day on the road. But there is a downside to that, um, and the downside is that there's less incentive to develop. Um, you can have very very average instructors. You can have below average average instructors who, because of the the context of COVID and lack of driving instructor availability, are able to command the same kind of rates as more experienced instructors um, who are being proactive and going seeking out development. So that's obviously an issue. And obviously we have the negative attitudes towards the DVSA that I referred to earlier. But part of that is, I mentioned on the previous slide, we can choose how we react to that. But I do have some sympathy with the... The, 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 the people who are stuck in this kind of feedback loop of blaming everything on the DVSA because I, I I can understand that there's comfort in having an external factor to blame all the time um, and things are a mess. You know, I, I get that things are a mess. Um, but there is, there is more to life. There, are, there is life beyond the DVSA, which is what we're going to talk about um, in a bit more detail because this is the difficult stuff and Liz referred a little bit to some of this in her presentation. So we all know, hopefully, that one in two learner drivers fail their first attempt at a driving test. Um, road traffic crashes are the main cause of death among those aged 15 to 29 years old. One in five drivers crash within a year of passing their test. And over 1,500 young drivers are killed or seriously injured on UK roads every year. All that data is from BREAK, which is a very good organisation on road safety. In 2019, 11,125 new drivers had their licences revoked under the new Driver Act. That was research conducted by the AA Driving School. Um, and I don't mean to be overly dramatic. I'm known for bringing a little bit of drama to proceedings, but you know, this, this, is, this is stuff that we're, we're not talking about. I don't, I don't see any of this stuff on Facebook groups. Um, I don't see it in any of the forums. I don't see... Um, anyone in the industry um, who, who, with a large audience, do you know, I, I, I kind of appreciate that we're preaching to the converted in many ways here, but this is not a main talking point at the moment in the industry. The talking points are standards checks. The talking points are trigger points. Um, and again, back to the drama, none of the people affected in these stats um, or their families could care less about your standards check. None of them could care less. In the grand scheme of things, and I get you all of industries and livelihoods, we all do. But in the grand scheme of things, this is our job. This is this is what we should be focusing on. And that's what I'm trying to get, um, that's what I'm trying to bring a little bit back to in this presentation. So um, quick note to Terry, I meant to start a stopwatch. So that would be really focused and really on time. I forgot to start my stopwatch. I'm going to assume I have 20 minutes left. Um if you're unfamiliar with this diagram, this diagram represents the safe systems approach. The safe systems approach um, is kind of uh, leads on from what used to be called the three E's around engineering, enforcement, and education. And it's to do with, I'll, I'll just go through this, the other, area, the, the other areas really quickly. Safe vehicles, obviously airbags, um, seat belts. Um, automatic braking systems, which are coming in now with um, technology. Post-crash care, which refers to um, you know, paramedics and you know, medical advances in 
treating accidents at the scene, treating victims of accidents at the scene, and the improvements that can be made to save lives, um, re reduce deaths in that way. Safe roads and roadsides um, is obviously kind of more council-led, but that's a really important part of it in terms of uh, traffic furniture, roundabout layouts, etc. Um, monitoring um, sites for accident stats and all that kind of thing. Safe speeds, again, reducing um, speeds around schools, um, speed bumps in you know, residential areas where they refer to. And this this segment here on safe road use, this is where we live. This is my interpretation of this. This is where we live. But we only occupy a very small segment of this because if you read the text around the outside, um, it refers to research and development and transferring knowledge. So as a trainer, as somebody who writes training courses, um, I, I very much envisage the, the majority of driving instructors and trainers in a small segment of this. Um, which contains the stuff about behavioural change and coaching, also skills, um, which is level one of the GDE. But we do occupy a small part of this. But that doesn't mean that it's not important. If we think about the other people who are included um, in these sections, you know, safe roads and roadsides can include the person who's responsible for clearing the verges um, on, on rural roads and making sure that, that you know, the visibility is, is, is better than it possibly can be. Post-crash care is paramedics. Safer vehicles is the mechanic who does your VAT. Um, like a, a, a previous speaker who was very eloquent about you know, how passionate she is about road safety. So all these people are really passionate about their jobs. And I should mention, I have to mention the ac academics. So the, 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 the stuff that the academics are producing, um, they, they've been doing it for years. And it's, it, it, it reels its head every now and then and filters down into our industry through things like the Hermes Report. Um, and it's great to see Liz on here. Um, loads of comments um, on the Facebook group about how this stuff should be included in the training. Yes, it should be included in the training, but it's, you know, it's not new. It should have been included in the training from you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the DVSA chose not to pursue the route of a professional qualification that could have, that could have covered a lot of this stuff. Um, lost some train of thought. Where were we? So I believe that we live inside this little box. Again, this is not exact. I just made a shape and put it on the presentation. That's my orange box. It's not um, packed. Um, and, and the behavioural change side of it and the coaching side of it is our opportunity to do it. If I was able to edit this online, I would draw a tiny little square in the corner of that that was about skills development, that was about getting people to test standards. Because that's that that's my view on the situation, and the, and the rest of so what what would that be? But fifteen percent of this orange box would be skills development, and the remaining eighty five percent would be about behavioural change. Um, it, it increasing, I think, was the term that was used. You know, cognitive awareness of learner drivers through things like theory of planned behaviour, um, all the research that she referred to that has come out of the RAC, which is excellent. I've read a lot of it. I use a lot of it in our training and um, the coaching, um, more advanced coaching stuff that Bob was referring to. Um, it's not just about what do you want to do today? Oh, I don't know. You know, if you're doing that, you're trying to tick a box on a standards check sheet and you're not going to get behavioural change, long-term behavioural change through stuff like that. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we progress. So what are the solutions and what kind of positive outcomes can we look for? 
um, from this this kind of current context based on the DVSA, where the DVSA is, based on the vast majority of ADIs and where they are and, and, and the context that, do you know, we're you know, just a quick word on the context of ADIs. Um, I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the kind of echo chamber kind of idea. And Terry mentioned at the start um, of, the, of this webinar that um, he only wanted to talk to the people who were engaged in this kind of content. And I think that's that, that's good. I think that's admirable. But we need to remember that. We need to remember that of all the people that will tune in and watch content like this, of all the people that will choose to go on training courses for the sake of developing themselves and improving themselves, and not just because they're really, really stressed out about a standard check, that percentage of driving instructors is really, really small. You can go a step further. There are 40,000 driving instructors in the United Kingdom, give or take, at any one moment in time. And only about 4,500, I think, will respond to a consultation by the DVSA. You know, we have problems that are bigger than uh, trigger points in this industry at the moment. So what can we do? Forget about the DVSA. Just forget about the DVSA. Check in with yourself. Why are you doing what you're doing as a driving instructor? Who are you and what are your values? How do you feel about your role and the service that you deliver or the service you are going to deliver as a PDI? Who do you want to be? What kind of instructor do you aspire to be? Who are your role models in this industry? And there are plenty of role models on here tonight. And if you want to change the kind of driving instructor you are, how will you go about that? These, are, these questions are all far more pressing than how am I going to pass my standards check? And I know I'm being dismissive about the standards check and the importance of it to livelihoods. If someone can remind me in the chat later, I'll, I'll, I'll address that point separately. Solution number two. Oh, sorry, I forgot to add it a slide. Uh, let me just check that's in the right place. Yeah, checking in with yourself and deciding the kind of person you want to be. The reason that this is important is because you run the risk. If you get stuck in that cycle of uh, social media, and test center culture, you could end up with what's known as identity foreclosure. This is this is about identity identity foreclosure is dedication to an identity or set of values prematurely and without compromise. It's coming out of your part three test and thinking that you've made it, thinking that you know everything that you need to know, and that there is no need or no um, no path for you to develop and get any better. Those with identity foreclosure accept the values that others have placed on them without considering other roles or visions for themselves that they might prefer. I love this quote. It's got nothing to do with our industry, but it fits our industry perfectly. The values that others have placed on them. And the others in this sentence could mean the people at the test centre. It could mean the people on Facebook, certain Facebook groups. But I would actually go a step further. Um, and, and say that I think that this could be the DVSA. To borrow a phrase from Chris Benstead, who's going to be talking later on, the DVSA is minimum standards. You can be better than what the DVSA expect of you. Solution number two, forget the DVSA. I hope you're kind of recognising there's a bit of a theme here going on. No, always one minute. Thanks, Terry. Know your history. Read the GDA matrix. Read the National Standard, read the Hermes Report. Actually, scrap that. Don't read the Hermes Report. Watch the video. 
Okay, these documents and this research is important. I'll skip that because I've got one minute left. Solution number three, forget the DVSA and learn how to coach. Learn how to coach properly. If you want to know how to learn how to coach properly, go and speak to Bob Morton. Go and speak to the guys from KIT. Come and speak to me at Bright Coaching. We will teach you how to coach properly above and beyond a standards check um, kind of frame of mind. Learn the difference between a 45-minute standards check and a coaching relationship. Learn about the differences between skills, level one GDE, and behavior, which is the rest. Reflect. Check in with yourself. If you don't know yourself, that's a problem. You're not going to be, help, be able to help anyone else. Shut up. Not you, Terry. Learn how to love silence. Uh, and learn more about people. For the most part, they're okay. You know, for the most part, they are okay. Improve, evolve, and grow. Please grow. You've passed your part three test. There is much more to do. I'm going to leave you with this um, little joke. Sisyphus was a mortal. I like my classics. They're the guys on here who know me already. I don't know that. Sisyphus was a mortal who was condemned by the gods to push a boulder uphill forever. So he pushed it uphill. He started pushing it uphill. And then a little bit later, in this sketch anyway, he decides that he's going to make a living at it. He gets really good at rolling boulders up a hill. And we've got Terry on here being the guy who's kind of mastered this and rolled it up the hill. We've got Bob holding a boulder up here. Chris is still working on it down there. And this is Lee. I don't have time to add anyone else in. The DVSA do not care about your development beyond standards check. If you want to develop beyond standards check, it's on you to go and figure that out. I get one minute to talk about Bright. Bright Coaching, we've written a professional qualification for driving instructors. It's a PDA level seven, which is equivalent to a BTEC level four or level five professional award. The award is in coaching, behavioral change, and driver psychology. There are four units, foundations of coaching, overcoming barriers, protocols for behavioral change, and engaging with driver psychology. I'll pop this uh, flyer up in the group chat um, on Facebook. And that's all for me. Thank you very much for having me on again, Terry. And thanks to everyone who's tuned in. Never mind that flyer. I want that, that diagram with me pushing the boulder up the hill. I like that. I want quite strapping in that. Um, for those who don't know, uh, uh, Stuart said that we met at the, the, the conference. At the conference, he was holding up uh, signs. And I thought it was great in my performance. And he held up a 10 and then I saw him hold up a five, and then I saw him hold up a two. Before I was, he was counting down, telling me how long I left. I thought it was getting worse and worse. So there you go. Um, but no, thank you for uh, for that, Stuart. Pleasure to have you on. And I, I think I'm trying to say this to everyone: make sure you put your links and stuff in the group somewhere. I'll put it in your guide. If you want to post any of your slides up as well, put it in there. We can put it in the guide so people can refer to it. Um, but but yeah, thank you for joining us today. Uh, always a pleasure hearing from you. Thanks, Terry. I'm gonna kick you out now. There we go. So, uh, yes, thank you to Stuart. Uh, who am I admitting next? Here we go. So, uh, now we have another human being who is also awesome. Can't believe I'm introducing someone as another human being. Um, but yes, he's a human being. A human being. <laughs> well, a human being, well, potentially. A human being, potentially. Oh, we've got a lot of feedback there. Uh, don't worry, I'll be coming off in a second, Rich. But uh, I'm introducing you as a human being, but I saw you getting punched in the stomach repeatedly over there, and that didn't look very human. Uh, if anyone see that video, go check out the Instructor Podcast Facebook page because that scared me mightily. Uh, and I'll never, no, I'll never to get in a fight with you, Rich. 
best bet, mate. <laughs> um, do you need to share your screen or are you doing yours just in person talking? I'm just going to be talking. Cool, right. Well, I am going to disappear then and I'll, I'll let you uh, uh, take us through some breathing techniques as well. Okie dokie. Thank you, Terry. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, stress. It's the number one reason people have for being and taking time off work nowadays. And it affects all of us to some degree. Some stress is good, some stress is bad. But unfortunately, as self-employed people as we are, all the stresses of that, we can't afford to take that time off work. So it behooves us not to get so stressed. Also, with all the things that we find on the roads, whether it's bad drivers or the people that you're uh, driving with, all of that adds to stress. And the brain actually maps the car onto your body, so your brain sees the car as your body. And this is why people get so stressed out when people come close to them in the car, because they see it as a fight-or-flight situation. So whenever you're in the car and whenever you're driving, it's fight-or-flight. It's going on in the background and all the stress hormones are drip, drip, drip being dropped in there. Also, all the other stresses, like a standard check you might have to do, and all the other things they add up, don't they? So what we're going to do today is I'm going to teach you how to breathe properly, which will help you to have more energy and help you to come from a more relaxed, based state in life so everything's easier. Stress won't affect you as much. Once we've done that, I'm going to show you some handy-dandy techniques to uh, Calm down and relax whenever you want. I'll say you're in a very stressful situation to just stop that stress immediately. So we'll talk more about those as we get to them. But first thing, since we're learning so much this evening and there's a lot going on, it's good to calm the mind, just relax and get into the body to allow us to take in more information. And this will help you with a thing called interoception, which will help you get some inside feeling as we go through these exercises. So the first thing I'd like you to do is sit nice and upright, shoulders over your hips, nice and balanced, head sitting on top of your neck. And just close your eyes for a moment and fidget about, get comfortable. And once you're comfortable, all you're going to do is you can imagine that I've got a heat lamp. Now the heat lamp warms you and it goes through you, so it relaxes you inside and out. And as it goes down from the top of your head all the way out through the soles of your feet, it relaxes and carries the cares and tensions away, leaving only relaxation. But your part in this is to actively let go and relax as the heat lamp goes down. I'll guide it and you just have a go with it. Nice and simple and very relaxing. So close your eyes, please. Just feel as if I'm turning my heat lamp on and it's just beaming on the top of your head. It's just relaxing your forehead and it's relaxing the top of your head. Just feel the tension from your scalp melting as the heat lamp comes down the face, relaxing the top of your head, down to the eyes, relaxing your eyes, relaxing the space around your eyes. And it relaxes the cares from your mind. All of your face relaxes, the rest of your head warms and releases. And the warm heat lamp comes down now, and just releases your neck, the front, the sides and the back. It just flows gently down and releases and warms and lets go of the tops of your shoulders. And the stream bifurcates and comes down from the shoulders, down your upper arms, carrying that wave of warmth and relaxation and carrying the tension with it. So it flows down to the elbows. And go at the elbows. The elbows feel as if they open like floodgates. 
The wave of warmth and relaxation flows down through your forearms, all the way down to your wrists, letting go. And it gets through the wrists, the wrists open and expand, and it warms and relaxes the tops and backs of your hands and in your fingers, and the wave flows out. And you just come back up now. Just feel the heat lamp releasing the top of your chest. As it flows down, feel it flow through you, releasing your shoulders. Let go of the habitual tensions everyone carries in the shoulders. Your chest muscles release and relax as it goes down, softening and relaxing your heart. Flowing down, letting go of the belly. The wave of warmth and relaxation flows down and through you. As it gets down to the hips, the hips soften and release. Feel the wave flow through and down as it gets to the tops of your thighs. It carries on releasing and warming and relaxing the front and the sides and the backs of the thigh muscles. The wave of warmth and relaxation carries on down, getting to the knees. The knees feel as if they expand as they open. And they're just warm. Wave flows down all the way through the front and sides and backs to the calves. Gets a bit harder in the calf muscles, so let go even more. There's a wave of warmth and relaxation goes down, leaving your mind clear and your body released and relaxed. It releases the tops of your feet, the toes, sides of your feet. As we get to the soles of your feet, feel as if your feet open up, just like giant black holes. And all of the cares and tensions and strains of life and the body and the mind flow down and out to be let go of. Now just sit there for a moment in that calm and relaxed state. And now with your eyes still closed, what we're going to do is I'd like you to just count your breaths. I want you to know if you're breathing in through your mouth or through your nose, one. And I want you to count your breaths for 30 seconds. And then I'll just give you a couple of pointers. Then we'll go on from there. Okay. And go. Just counting the breaths. In and out. One in breath and out breath counts as one. And just keep counting your breaths. One more seconds. Okay, you can stop counting your breaths. Open up your eyes, expand your awareness back out. Now, if you found you were breathing through your mouth, you need to learn how to retrain yourself to stop doing that. Breathing through the mouth actually creates more stress, raises your blood pressure, and has other health problems. So that's not so good for you. Being through your nose, that's great. The exercises we're going to be doing tonight are going to be through the nose and the mouth. But when you're breathing generally in real life, you want to be breathing just with the nose for many reasons. Most of them health-related, of course. So I don't know what the amount of breath you took in there are, but let's just break this down. The optimum amount of breathing that you should be doing is one in and out cycle of breaths six times in 30 seconds and six times for a minute. So it's quite a small amount of breathing, really. Most people are breathing in the 14 to 16 range, and that's far too fast. Some clients are getting breathing up into 22, 24. And unfortunately, that sends messages to your brain that you're in fight or flight and stress mode. So again, that's stressing you out some more. So just to be aware of that. Now we're going to move on to some simple breathing. First thing we're going to do is take both hands. I want you to place them down below your belly button and center your attention down there. 
Now, the mechanism for deep diaphragmatic breathing we're going to use for the techniques and to teach you how to breathe properly, because this is the way we all used to breathe, is simply first pushing your belly out a little against your hands and then just pulling your lower belly in. So imagine all that space below the belly button. You're expanding it out as you're breathing in and then just pulling it back gently in as you breathe out. So we'll just do three of these. Have a go again. Pushing out, pulling in, pushing out, pulling in, and one more push out, pull in. Now what that does is that pulls your diaphragm down, which is the muscle inside your body that's responsible for opening your lungs up, drawing air in, and for closing your lungs down, getting excess toxins and CO2 out. So this is a natural way we used to breathe, belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing. If you look at a little kid, that's still how they breathe. But most people model themselves on other people as they grow up and they just don't breathe right anymore. So all we're going to do now, again, is going to close your eyes if you can to help this. And you're going to place your hands down below the belly button and you're just going to follow your breath in a few times from the nose all the way down to the center of your lower belly, just past the belly button and in the middle. You can't really breathe like that, but it subjectively feels like the breath goes down there. And by dint of focusing your attention down there and using the belly mechanism, you're going to be getting more air in and getting more waste toxins out. And all of your body systems will thank you. So let's have a little go at that now. So close your eyes, a few breaths into the center and a few breaths back out again. Follow it in, follow it out. Just get used to the breath going in, the breath going out. Like a sink filling from the base up and emptying back out. And then we're going to put it together with the mechanism of the movement of the belly. So with your eyes still closed, as you breathe in now down to your lower center, I want you to push your belly gently out, feel the air flowing in, and then just pull your belly gently in, feel the air flowing back out. Don't force it, but take a nice deep breath. And we'll do a few more of those. Work at your own pace, but pushing your belly out, breathing in, pulling your belly in, breathing out. Pushing the belly out, breathing in through the nose, pulling the belly in and breathing out. So just do that for another few moments, just by yourself. Just get used to the mechanism of breathing. Okay, we're just going to do three more of those. Breathing in, expanding your belly out, breathing out, pulling your belly in. Breathing in, expanding your belly out, breathing out, pulling your belly gently back in. Last one, breathing in through the nose all the way to the lower belly as you push your belly out, breathing out as you push it back in. Cool, open up your eyes, open up and out. Just move around, wriggle around if you're feeling a bit uncomfortable or stiff now. Now, as I said before, it's your natural mode of breathing. All of your body's processes, including your immune system, rely on the breath. So if you just practice this a few times a day, eventually it'll become more natural to you and you'll start to benefit more and more. I recommend you pick a couple of times a day and sit quietly and breathe for three minutes at a time. But if not, just pick like 30-odd seconds and just do an in and out breath for six seconds, an in and out breath for six seconds, and an in and out breath for six seconds with a deep diaphragmatic breathing. And that'll keep you on that nice baseline throughout the day and just make everything work better. And you'll just be, as I say, calm. So that's how to breathe.
the next thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at what you can do to relax and calm down. Say you've had a stressful day, you want to relax. Or you've just got some time in between appointments and you want to take a couple of minutes to yourself. This works by stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system. That's a part of your nervous system that's responsible for the rest and digest system. So by doing specific things with the breathing, this tells your brain, calm everything down to release serotonin, melatonin and relaxation hormones and to calm down the sympathetic nervous system, which is the one responsible for fight or flight and activity and put you on a nice, relaxed, even keel. So this one involves breathing in through the nose and breathing out through the mouth like a sigh. Now, the thing about this is to get it right and to get your body to do the right thing for you, then you need to breathe in through the nose and breathe out through the mouth like a sigh, but for longer than the in-breath. Now, sometimes we talk about 7-11 or 7 seconds or a count of 7 for the in-breath and a count out for 11 of the out-breath. <clears throat> but that's a bit too much for a lot of people. So we're going to go with something really, really quite simple. And what we're going to do is we're going to go for an in-breath of four and an out-breath of six. So you should all be able to do that nice and comfortably. Now, just a side note, with all these exercises, as you're using the breath um, so much, and often most people's lungs aren't as open as it might be, and we're not used to taking so much oxygen in, you might feel a little lightheaded. Don't worry about that. Just stop whatever the technique is. Just take a pause for a moment and things will level themselves out nice and quickly. But it's just to be aware of it. It's nothing to be concerned of. So with this one, I'll just demonstrate this a few times and then we'll do go through it together. And then I'd like you to take a few moments to spend practicing yourself because that's how you're going to get used to it. Now, I will be um, checking up on the chat and uh, looking into them tomorrow. And I'll be replying to anything, so any questions that anyone might have about anything that we do today, please feel free to ask. Okay, so with this one, I'll do a long breath in and a longer breath out, as you can see it. I'll show it's pretty self-explanatory, but I'm breathing in. Breathing in. Breathing in. Now, naturally, on the out-breath, generally, your system relaxes anyway. So by over-emphasizing that, it's making the relaxation mode kick in a lot quicker and, and more effectively. So again, this time joining with me, we're just going to do a count of an in-breath for four and a count of an in-out breath for six. Again, deep diaphragmatic breathing if you can. I know it's a few things to put together, but ideally you want to be doing that. That gets enough oxygen in. And when you're doing the out-breath, make sure you get most of that air out. You don't have to force it. You don't have to go, or anything at the end. But just try and let it tail off so you're getting rid of the CO2 and the toxins, because your lungs and breathing are responsible for getting rid of a lot of the toxins from your system. So let's have a go with that. 
You can keep your eyes open if you want, or you can close them. That's totally up to you. But we're going to breathe in for a count of four and breathe out for a count of six. We'll do that sometimes together, and I'm leave you to do it. And just promise you don't fall asleep. Okay. So breathing in for a count of four. One, two, three, four. Breathing out for a count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Breathing in for a count of four. Breathing out for a count of six, like a sigh. Breathing in. And out. Now keep going yourself. Breathing in for a count of four. If that suits you, breathing out for six. And again, breathing in for four, breathing out for six. Do three more counts of that. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six. Last one. Let all the air out. Take a big deep breath in. Wake up, open up the eyes. Let it out. And you should feel a lot calmer, much more relaxed, much more in the zone there. It works, as I say, using your body's physiology and neurology and chemicals to just let it all go. Now, that can be used whenever you want, and it does take a few minutes, but it works. Uh, retreat. This next one, this is what I teach to people who often suffer from anxiety for my instant. This is often one of my programs called the Instant Calm. So this next one is ideal if you've just perhaps been in some sort of angry situation where someone got angry on the road or maybe you're in a car crash. I don't know. But some sort of stressful situation in life, especially if you're driving a instructor. Use this one and this one rapidly calms everything down. Calms the sympathetic nervous system rapidly down and in real time. And you only have to do this a few times for it to really work. It just cuts off the, the dropping of cortisol into the system, the noradrenaline, the adrenaline for the brain and adrenaline for the body. So it revs your heart up, makes your nervous system on edge and makes you ready for fight or flight. This changes it very, very, very rapidly. The diaphragm is very responsible for sending messages to the brain about stressor states. This helps to send the messages that you're out of a stressor state. It works like this. This is an in-breath through the nose, a pause, and then a long out-breath like a sigh again. But this is really make this one like a sigh. So you can imagine that you're breathing up to about here, if you're filling up from the bottom, pausing here and then filling the rest up to here. Now, when you're doing that, you can't really fill that much up. It's ostensibly like that. The first breath opens up the lungs and takes in the maximal amount of oxygen. The second shorter breath, strips the excess carbon dioxide out of your bloodstream, rapidly balances everything out. So I'll demonstrate this now so you can hear it. This goes something like this. And again. 
I'd like you joining with me for three goes of this now. You're going to breathe in, pause, breathe out like a sigh. We'll do three rounds of it and see how we go. Breathing in, pause, in, 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 in. And you should be feeling things again quite a bit. We're going to do three more of those with me, please. Work at your own pace. And you should be feeling quite a lot going on. As I said, practice this. Make it your own and you can utilize this whenever you want to recover quickly from a stressful situation or when you feel yourself getting really into one. In your own life, you know what markers of stress are and what causes them, hopefully. So start to try and recognize those. So before you get too stressed, you can put something into place to help you to do that. Practice each of these techniques until it becomes natural. It doesn't take very long. And you'll be all good. You've got a nice palette of stuff. If you want to relax in between driving sessions or chill out when you get home, or you want to feel super calm before you're doing standard check or before you're getting on another road trip. So I hope that really helps. Um, Terry asked me to mention some of this stuff I do. All right, Terry? I'm just going to have a couple of things that might be helpful to you. I have a full stretching and loosening course for people who spend a lot of time sitting down. This involves standing up exercises and sitting down ones to stop your vertebrae collapsing on the nature of crumbling, hip adductors and hip flexors getting too tight and your body falling apart from too much sitting, gets rid of shoulder and back ache. And my instant calm um, session, which is much like uh, sorry, instant uh, energy session, that boosts all your energy set bits up in two minutes or less. Terry's just been through that and he benefited massively. So I'll talk more about those tomorrow. I might mention them in the Facebook group. If anybody's got any interest, just get in touch, talk to me, and, and we'll move on from there. Hope that was helpful, Terry. Yeah, um, I love all that stuff. Uh, I think that it's always interesting getting the, the the experience from someone who doesn't work in our industry, you know, and it's kind of coming in blank on that. So I think that's always good for me. But but yeah. yeah. Um did do some work with Rich recently, and I'm surprised almost by the the impact it had. Um, but yeah, also just want to take a moment to thank you again. Rich is another person that has nothing to do with our industry, and yet he's willing to come and give his time to do this. And and I feel that was a nice thing to have in the middle of the session. Uh, and I was slightly concerned that we was all getting quite relaxed. You know, and then everyone would start switching off because they're like, tired and want to go to bed. But nope, you brought us back up again. So, so I like that. So, a big thank you for joining us, Rich. And yeah, get that stuff in the in the the, yeah. the Facebook group later on. All right, Terry. Thanks very much. See you no all later. Worries. Cheers. Bye. 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 Excellent. So, a big thank you to Rich Morley there. Um, lovely to get something a little bit different like that. I'm I'm a big fan of those breathing uh, techniques. Um, and, and yeah, I did do some work with Rich recently, and I used the word, it surprised me, and, and uh, I'm almost going to go against what I would normally say here, and ignore your pupils, forget your pupils, go work with Rich to work on you, uh, he's, a, he's a genius, and I don't know how he does what he does, but he does it really well. So, uh, we're now joined by Dale Pickles, uh, another person who I have never met in person, um, but he was kind enough to offer to fill in after someone else pulled out. Uh, so, you know, big thank you for stepping up to that, Dale. You're welcome. You're welcome. Glad I could help. 
Pleasure to have you on. Uh, so what I'm going to do straight away is, well, do you want to check and make sure you can uh, share your screen? I know you've... Uh, screen. Are you able to? Have I still got it set up? Yeah, there we go. Uh, so I will step out. I will uh, disappear and let you crack on. And um, if you're running a bit long, don't worry. I think everyone has so far, <laughs> apart from Rich. But if you're running a bit long, I'll jump in. But uh, other than that, I'll, uh, I'll just wait for you to finish. But again, thank you for, for stepping up to the plate. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm basically just going to give you some tips on how to engage with neurodiverse learners. Um, I have never been a driving instructor. I have learned to drive and that's about it. Um, so I am Dal Pickles. I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD at the start of this year, but I've known I didn't fit in for years. Um, I run a company called B Squared. Uh, we support schools to show progress for people with CND, special educational needs. Um, I've worked in that industry for over 20 years. I am the host of the award-winning uh, podcast, The Sendcast. I, I know a few of the people listening listen to uh, watching, listen to the same cast. It's a great way of finding out about neurodiversity and other needs. Um, I personally passed my theory test on the second attempt, but I did pass my practical first time, so that's all right. And my 17-year-old daughter is currently learning to drive, um, and she suffers from anxiety, and it's great fun watching her going through the process, um, remembering back to my days, but also thinking about what works for her and what doesn't work for the, um, her. Um Presentations can be boring, really long Meganar can be probably quite boring. So um, I don't do pictures, though. So generally, what you're going to do is I'm going to put some bullet points up on the screen. I'm going to talk around them because to me, that's more interesting listening to the person than just reading the screen. So the only image you're going to get is this one here. Um, and as it says, there, I'm just going to go through a couple of things to help you think about how to support neurodiverse learners. Um, and neurodiversity is an umbrella term for a wide range of needs. Uh, most people think of autism, um, but there's also ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, and many other things. Um, I cannot go into anything specific because it is such a big umbrella term. There is a complete variety. Um, you may have supported one autistic learner, but the next person you come across will be completely different. Um, but the tips I give you today will help you engage and support your neurodiverse learners. Um, and like so many things related to SEN, what works for these pupils and the suggestions I'm making for neurodiverse pupils will work for all pupils, especially those suffering with anxiety and those who are worried about things. It can really help them as well. Okay, first of all, five things never to say to a neurodivergent learner. Don't worry, everyone's a little bit autistic. Do you take medication for that? That's a common one for ADHD. Um, I have social issues too, but you seem so normal. And you just need to try harder. And generally that one comes out when you talk about ADHD, and maybe concentration. That Okay, you can't concentrate. If you tried harder, you might be able to. Or things like dyslexia with spelling, reading, things like that. Again, people might say that. And it's not... It's just they access the world in a different way. That's the best way of saying it. Um, so you may have heard the term identity first language or person first language. Um, so identity first is I am autistic, whereas person first is I am someone with autism. Okay, and lots of research has gone on and 
most autistic people prefer the term I am autistic. Okay. Um, not I'm Jack I, and I have autism. Yeah. So it's I am autistic. Um, but as I said, that's most. Um, but it depends on the person. So listen to how they say things. Listen to how they refer to themselves. If you're not sure, just ask them. Um, generally, I would say it's often when they're fre- when they're newly diagnosed, they may say I have autism, but they're more confident with their autism and things like that. They're more likely to say I am autistic. Okay, but do just ask. A um, couple other things. So I am happy to share that I'm autistic and I have ADHD. Um, I'm older. I don't really care anymore what people think of me. I've got to that point where I'm just happy. I don't really care. Uh, however, my 15-year-old daughter isn't that confident. Um, she knows she's autistic. She's got, which on the cam. She's on the waiting list and things like that. But there are stereotypes around autism. There are, if you watch various films, TV programs, Meltdown, things like that. And it is a spectrum. So there are people who may not want to say they're autistic to people. They might not want to share. They're not confident enough around that. So don't expect everyone to come out and say, I am autistic or I have autism. Um, You will teach people who are not aware they are autistic or have ADHD. Like my driving instructor, I got diagnosed at 43. I obviously had it when I was 17, 18. It just, it didn't impact me that much. And that last bit on there is a very generalized rule is the earlier a person is diagnosed, the greater the need and impact. So there are lots of adults being diagnosed, but generally it's not a, was they got through school. It might not have been greatest school, but they got through school without it hugely impacting. Um, I think more and more, at the time, you had to be very, we'll say they were very autistic, that's not great. You had to highly be you had to be highly impacted around autism or things like that to get a diagnosis and to get that educational support. Uh, and lots of people might have just been naughty or weird or that one or the weirdo, anything like that. They may have been autistic, they may have had ADHD, but it wasn't diagnosed back then. But they got through school, they've got jobs, they're living their lives. Um, but they might get a diagnosis like I did later on in life. But if they're going to be, so maybe a lot of the 17 year olds you teach or 18 year olds, you might recognize some of the signs of being neurodiverse. Um, and some of the things you'll see as I go through here, you might recognize some of the symptoms I go through or some of the needs that I talk about. Um, but they may not be diagnosed. That's a it's a whole conversation should you approach them. And that's, I personally wouldn't. That's a big conversation. If you know them well, they're struggling, it really depends. Um, I personally, in most cases, wait for the other person to bring it up. Um, there is a big myth around eye contact. Um, so I think about lots of people with autism don't like eye contact. Yes, yeah, some don't, but some do. Um, I really don't care. Eye contact isn't a big thing for me either way, but I know others who really struggle with eye contact and you'll have a really in-depth conversation with them, but they would just be staring at the floor or staring at a wall past you or not even in your direction. Um, And some people feel that making eye contact is really important because it shows you're listening, it shows you're paying attention. And also, when you're making eye contact, you do read more facial language. You can respond easier and things like that. There is great benefits of eye contact and seeing the face and things like that. But 
we can't expect it. We can't expect someone to give us eye contact if they feel don't feel confident. Now, as driving instructors, hopefully you should be driving down the road making eye contact with your learners. Hopefully they should have their eyes on the road. So that does make life easier. Um, but it does mean when you're stopped, don't necessarily expect them to look at you and make eye contact. Um, if you're not sure they're listening, they're not sure they're understanding it, you, there are ways to check that understanding afterwards. Um, and if you give simple, clear, instru explicit instructions, um, and you can ask them to confirm it back by asking them to repeat the instructions or say it in their own way or what they're going to do to do what you've asked, the eye contact is great, but you can't always expect it. But also, eye contact isn't a way of identifying if someone has autism. They might have eye contact. They might make eye contact. They might not. Now, a big thing with neurodiversity is uh, lots of us like certainty. We like to know exactly what's going to happen. Um, and we like to know when it's going to happen and what it's going to look like and how I feel. And every we like to know everything about it. When we don't have that certainty, that's when um, we can get a little bit um, anxious. Yeah, when we don't know what's going to happen, we get anxious. We don't know how it's going to look. We don't know anything about it. What's going to happen? We get anxious. And drive, learning to drive is really interesting because when you're in school, you are one of many children. You have many teachers. You always learn in a classroom. And you're going to learn to drive. So what does that look like? And once you've learned to drive, it's really obvious. It's really obvious what it's going to look like. But from that 17-year-old's point of view, do they really know? Now, they might have older brothers and sisters and know what learning to drive looks like because they've seen their, their brothers and sisters go off and learn how to drive. But if they're the eldest and they don't have older customers, do they know what's going to happen? Um, and if you can help them know what's going to happen, what's going to what you're going to look like, things like that, the more knowledge they have about what's going to happen, the less anxious they will be. So this works for everyone. This works for everyone. My, my wife, um, if she's got to go somewhere, um, she likes to drive there beforehand so she knows what it's going to look like, what the parking is, where she's going to park, is the traffic busy. So generally, if she has to go somewhere, we generally at the weekend will go there first just so she can be sure. And it makes her less anxious, means she's not worrying about the drive. The drive she's confident with, she's worried about what happens next. So how do you reduce anxiety? As I said, the more knowledge you have, the better. So photos of you, your car, so they know who's going to turn up, what car they'll be driving in. Photos of you in the car. It sounds really silly, but it really helps people say, well, this is what it's going to look like. You'll be sitting here. They'll be next to the. They'll be next to you. Think about the clothes you're wearing. Um, if your photo is you, the red t-shirt or red shirt, and you turn up in a white t-shirt, believe it or not, to so some people that can be no. He's not supposed to be like that. He's supposed to be in a red shirt. So, if you can wear consistent clothing, white shirts or t-shirts, something which is, it just they. It's that certainty, knowing what to expect. Um, and there's lots of tips on this slide that you could do to help people know what to expect on their first lesson. And some of it you're probably going to is really obvious. And it really is driving instructors because you do it all the time. But for someone who's never learned to drive or and probably doesn't have parents' life, what is it going to look like? 
and being able to have those questions answered. And if you have websites or that information somewhere, they can access it. So they can find out what is going to happen, what you're expecting from them, what is going to ha- what do they need to do? Um, one said they don't want to do something. I remember my daughter went up for her first driving lesson and he said to her, my wife, I wasn't there. Oh, we're going to go off down here. And if she's doing well, we'll just, she'll drive back. And you can see my daughter, Japanese, she had just froze that she's going to drive back across the main road and into our road and outside. She just huge anxiety. And she was anxious all the way up to her first lesson. She didn't know what to expect. And hearing that she was just really worried because she was sitting in the passenger seat. He was driving off. She's like, I'm never going to be able to do this. But sure enough, end of that lesson, she drove back to our house. She breaks a bit abruptly, but that's fine. Um, but any information you can give someone about what's going to happen, who you are, anything like that is going to help reduce anxiety. Okay, I'm just going to talk about regulation and or reg, being regulated and being dysregulated. So emotional regulation is the ability to manage and respond to an emotional experience. Whereas emotional dysregulation is a decreased ability, decreased inability, a decreased ability to control or regulate emotional responses. Um, we unconsciously use our emotional regulation strategies to cope with difficult situations many times throughout a day. And anxiety is a sign of emotional dysregulation. So they're not sure, they're not sure what's happening, and that anxiety is how it presents. So if you see someone anxious, they're not able to regulate their emotional responses due to something happening. Okay, uh, dysregulation can lead to that fight or flight or freeze kind of thing if we get really down there. And I'm sure some of you have experienced that during a driving lesson. That's why you will have your dual controls. Um, but yeah, this being regulated and dysregulated is really, really important. Um, and I'm sure when we were all young, driving along with three friends in the car, music up loud. I had one of those big stereos, singing along, having a great time, probably doing all the things you lot tell us not to do. Um, you get to where you go, you're not sure what to do next. It was a difficult situation um, requiring me to concentrate a lot more. And then you turn the music down, don't you? You go, oh, hang on, let's turn this down so I can concentrate. Why is that? Because in that moment, we were dysregulated. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Our senses were getting overloaded with that loud music, trying to work out what's going on. So I knew that actually that loud music is one of the things I'm struggling with. So I was able to turn it down. That brought down my senses. I was then able to regulate more, concentrate on what I needed to, and then get on with what was in front of me. Yeah, so we all experience this regulated, dysregulated. Yeah, sometimes you're at home, it gets too much, you step out and you have a breather. Yeah, some people go out. Have a, have a fag break, um, or they just go off end of the day, maybe have a bottle of wine or half a bottle of wine or no bottle of wine. But there are things we do that it might be you're a short fuse person and you explode quickly, but then you bring yourself down, something brings you down, or it, it might be something you could, it takes you longer, but we all have this regulated, dysregulated state. And it's important to know how to get yourself regulated. It's also thinking about when you've got your learners in the car with you, being aware of that regulated, dysregulated, and how can you help them be regulated? And that anxiety is one of those signs. Um, clear communication is really, really crucial when you talk about neurodiversity because we can be very, very um, blunt. We don't 
I say we, um, I'm quite good with it. If you say some autistic children, chin up, they will literally lift their chin up and look up. If you say, come on, pull your socks up, they will literally reach down and pull their socks up. Uh, give yourself a pat on the back, they're going to be hitting that back. They don't understand that these are just sayings that you're and what you mean by them. They're hearing what you are saying and taking it as you were saying it. Yeah, so pat yourself on the back, they're going to do that and go, why have I just done that? What does that really mean? Not, you're just saying congratulations, you did well there. So there is explicit communication and there is implicit communication. And explicit is, it's really clear, it's got everything you need. It cannot be um, misunderstood. Yeah, there is no room for confusion. Yeah. So when you hold the whole, when I do my hand on the dash, you will do an emergency stop. You're being very clear on what you're expecting of them. Whereas the implicit is... Um, it's not you kind of inferring yeah so you might give them some of the information thinking oh if they know this bit they'll know the rest but you're not being explicit yeah so you might say oh we're going to head this way and the way you mean might be one way the way they go could be a different way things like that so implicit is kind of you're hoping they have the understanding they may not and i remember one of my um first driving lessons um the driver said, bring the car to a stop up ahead. I drove to where indicated, pushed my right foot on the brake, and as the car stopped, it judded and the engine stalled. And he said, well, why didn't you push the clutch down? I said, did you tell me to? He didn't. He didn't tell me to put the clutch down. And it was being implicit because he taught me that as you, the clutch, and he told me about at the beginning about how I have to lift the clutch up to engage the engine and all that lot. But he didn't then tell me then I had to do the reverse. and. It's really obvious when you step back and think about it. And obviously, all of you do because you're driving instructors, so you get it very much so. But for me, 17-year-old me was anxious. This was my first driving lesson. I'm not sure where it's going. I'm in a control of a car. I'm going to crash into something. I've got all these worries. And because he's talking about how the clutch works, the, he, it was implicit that I would be pushing that clutch down. But it wasn't explicit. And so when people make mistakes in your driver you'll say something think about have you been explicit or were you in was it implicit was there room for that confusion and the clearer you can be the more explicit communication there is the easier it is for everyone um concept of choice so you may have heard of pda or odd so pda is a pathological demand avoidance and odd is um basically being defined. I can't remember what it stands for. But basically, some, some of us, and I'm, I get this in a situation, if you tell me what to do, I do not like it. So we give the concept of choice. Um, and if you have a choice, you feel you have some control, which is really, really useful. And it might be just meaningless, like what flavor drink or what flavor crisps, but it's giving them some control. And you can use choices to get past an obstacle. Okay. If you go to a shop and it doesn't have the cake you wanted, you have two options. And sometimes you might have a child with you. You go, oh, was it that cake? You go, well, okay. So option A is a different cake or option B, go home without cake. And obviously no one goes home without cake. Okay, so rather than saying this is what's going to happen, by giving them a choice where they choose the same thing you're going to present to them, by giving them that choice, it gives them control. Yeah. And it also helps you understand how they feel. Yeah, so they might go for an easy option over a hard option. 
and learning about how they how they are, they might get the easy first, put the hard option, put the hard bit off, or they might want to get the hard bit. But giving them choice gives them control and it gives them agency, which is a word I only heard about um, in the last couple of years. And agency is this sense of control that you feel in your life, your capacity to influence your own thoughts and behaviors and have faith in your ability to handle a wide range of tasks and situations. Um, which is basically you're kind of giving them agency with a car. If you teach them to drive is you're giving them agency with that car, but they need agency in that decision-making process as well. So I'm basically wrapping up. Um, trying to, Hopefully I haven't been too long, Terry. Well, it's been great. Um, but all the bits I've given you, that isn't going to just support those with autism and ADHD or dyslexia. It's going to support all your learners. Yeah. So all the stuff I've given you here is going to support all your learners. If you want to learn more about neurodiversity or other aspects of SEND, check out the Sendcast. There's 150 episodes already. Um, and you can either go to the usual Spotify and so on. But if you go on the website, you can search by guest or topic to find episodes that interest you. But that's everything. So, well, well, thank you for joining us, Taylor. I said at the start, thank you for stepping in as well. But thank you for joining us overall. You were actually on my original list. <laughs> so there you go. Um, but I am going to, you know, there was only a little bit of offence take when you started off by pointing out that you were uh, an award-winning podcast because the Instructor Podcast is not, you know. So oh, yeah. Should be. Should be. It's. I think it was one of the ones I paid for dinner, so I got the, um, I got the award type thing. It's one of those ones, I think. It's, it's well, maybe that's what I need to do. <laughs> Either way, yeah. uh, thank you for joining <laughs> us. Um, I am going to be rude again, and I'm going to do that thing where I speak to someone for the first time, say hello, and then say bye and and shift you off. Uh, now you're not in the Facebook group, so if there's anything you would like me to share with the guys, you can send it to me, and I'll share it in there, and I'll also send you uh, their feedback, and I can send them in your direction as well. Send the links for you. But there's quite a few people in the comments here talking about the podcast, wanting links on the podcast, also wanting to. Come on my podcast so uh you know nudge nudge wink wink we'll see what we can do but you know thank you for your time today it's been brilliant you're welcome enjoy the rest of the meganar thank you cheers bye so uh another brilliant guest another external guest and um yeah so uh, i said it kind of earlier but how great is it that these people that aren't in the industry are willing to come and give thoughts and advice and words of wisdom to our industry? Speaking of people who aren't in the industry, we're joined by someone who isn't a driving instructor right now who's <laughs> going to talk about the theory test, uh, and hopefully he'll mention the fact that the 5 Minute Theory podcast returns today. So you can either continue listening to the Megan Art or ditch it and go and share the 5 Minute Theory with all your students, but I'd probably suggest doing this. Uh, Chris? Uh, do you want to check these? I'm, it's been a long night. I'm starting to get delirious. Do you want to check that uh, you can share your screen? I, I can. Yeah, no, that's fine. Do you want to do it? I, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna say, you know, get me to follow. Follow after all of that when I'm the one that likes to reflect. And now I've got to remember what I've put together and I've got to talk about it. But you know, we'll see how it goes. Well, my biggest concern, and I, I realise I'm eating into time here, but whatever. There's only three people left, including you. Um, is that I've noticed how professional everyone looks on these. And I'm wearing my She-Hulk t-shirt, thinking I'll be all right when Chris comes on because he'll be wearing some kind of Star Wars shirt or something. But nope, wearing a shirt, so it's just me that looks right. professional. Anyway, I'll let you crack on. You've got about you 20 much. minutes. Um, lo lovely to follow Dale. Um, yeah, awesome stuff. I met I met Dale at a um, 
dyslexia conference and uh no they've got some brilliant stuff check out their podcast i've put the link on the um thing already so you can you can do that instead of listening to me if you like it's all good uh so yeah um i'm used to when i'm doing stuff with terry having him talking back so it's a bit weird um having a word about the theory test i decided there's so many things about theory um the thing to focus on with instructors is is what you can do in the car what you can be aware of. Um, just to give you a, a quick overview of, of me, if anyone doesn't isn't familiar, doesn't know me, um, I am an ADI, I am a driving instructor, whatever he said. I haven't got a car, I get that, but I'm still teaching, it's all good. Um, I still go out, my most recent pupil to pass uh, was on hand controls, so that was really interesting. Um, audit trainer, and I am specialising in the theory. Uh, and I do other bits as well, as you can see on the screen. Uh, if anyone hasn't got my kid's book, um, Is There a Monster? If you want something that's nothing to do with the industry and will help you go to sleep, listen to one of Terry's podcasts. So um, here we go. The theory test. A uh, quick bit of maths to start with. 50 minus 42. Yes, correct. It's one. So failing by one, one of my favourite phrases uh, that people will have possibly heard from me before. Uh, I, it's what I get constantly when I talk to people who've, who've not been successful at the theory test. Um, I find it incredibly frustrating, but not necessarily because of them, because of, that's the way the test works. It, it's got this way of convincing people they're nearly there, almost like gambling. It's that same kind of, you know, you're not quite losing enough to invest in doing, you know, solving the problem. So, yeah, it it's really deceptive. Please don't fall into the trap. Uh, don't let your, your pupils fall into the trap. Look at the process. Try and support them with the process um, or send them to someone who can, like myself, um, who, who can guide them through it if you don't want to. It's not for everyone. Um, not everyone enjoys doing the theory or feels comfortable doing it. That's fine. Not a problem at all. So the, what we know is that the test is 0 to 50. It's 50 questions and that the pass mark is at the 86%, so 43 marks. Um, what I find is that on average, people can achieve 60 to 80% just by knowledge just by working it through, by revising what they haven't learned yet, which is a system I still can't understand why we use. Um, but we're taught it. We learn it as, as part of our part one so often. It's not integrated training. Um, what I would like to see is the part one and part two switched, because then I think we can focus on driving and then move towards part one knowledge being more about education. So that knowledge fills the gap for 60 to 80% of the stuff, but how do we bridge that gap in between? So there's two factors, two areas that I've identified um, that I label as understanding and comprehension. Now, arguably there's a bit of a crossover. I, I go with understanding being technical knowledge. It's a technical subject. So there are words that get used they might not ever have come across before. Um, maneuver. No, no 17-year-old uses maneuver except for in a driving context. Uh, none of us can spell it. So, you know, I like do. Um, then uh, you know, it 
it's the concept of it. it it's it's how does it fit together as well that level of understanding and then there's the written english it's a written reading written test it's very heavily reading written so the comprehension comes under that as well so it's not necessarily technical understanding of of the words it's also the ability to to do it to work through the question to understand what's going on uh, to just refer back to to what dale was covering um regarding additional needs there you know there tends to be a link between understanding figuring out what that question means and my pupils that have um autism or um, adhd and and uh dyslexia is often a different a different challenge because that's about getting it from the screen you know into into their heads and and comprehending it that way um but i i haven't had a, a single autistic pupil who hasn't been right with the question it's just not the dvsa is right when it comes to the answer so sometimes that comes under that comprehension as well and work it working that through trying to to figure it out and and do it in the pupil's way there is additional help available um i'll, I'll nudge terry to post because he's really good at that knowing which podcast is which um anything where we where we've covered that uh and i'm sure he will also post the five minute theory uh which is being sponsored by by uh theory test explained and uh, i'm gonna work with uh, with terry on that one which is great so i'm sorry that's the understanding and comprehension bit the rules these are three things that are not taught very well by driving instructors um, as in all of the pupils I've taught theory, none of them have got this or been shown this as rules. Sorry. In English, we read from left to right. So hopefully that will make a bit more sense to you. In Chinese, they read from top to bottom. In uh, Arabic, they read from right to left. So knowing these rules means that we can easily predict what's happening, understand what's happening and know what to expect from other people. And some of the things that Dale was talking about, that ability to understand and, and know what's going to happen, reducing anxiety levels. It also reduces crash levels on the road. So the three rules that I absolutely accept, all instructors demonstrate and all instructors encourage. And we might say when they're driving down the wrong side of the road, we drive on the left in this country don't get taught as rules specifically in my experience and my pupils experience it's from coming from lots and lots of different instructors we drive on the left it's the left hand drive system um, we overtake on the right four exceptions for that every rule has an exception i thought i'd found one that didn't which was don't hit stuff until one of my pdi said accept the break so every rule has an exception um and i i that's part of how, where i start but there's four exceptions that i can find for overtaking on the right um if you've got a keep left arrow on the back of a lorry to take the one out of the theory test but an an order sign telling you to overtake on on the left fine uh, one-way roads and remember that a, a one-way road is is a big thing it's not the little cut through people always have in their head this little cut through and pupils will say well i can't overtake on a one-way road because of all the parked cars or it's not wide enough so trying to make sure they understand the 
one way could be a big road uh, and then dual carriageways and motorways but you can't turn right on a motorway so only when they're turning right on the dual carriageway which i'm sure you're all aware of uh, but those are the exceptions and then we drive clockwise that's not just roundabouts if you go to a petrol station it's clockwise if you go to a car park it's naturally clockwise so these defaults are really important and by making sure that they are um, overt as rules and not just this is what we do it will help them with the theory test because when they read those questions that's the the, the construct the model inside of which they'll be working so there are some words that come up regularly um dual carriageway uh like just in your head just define dual carriageway for a second so we're going to come back to that one um junction which we use all the time again not familiar one to pupils when they're when they're learning um necessarily and we assume that there's an understanding with that um road versus lane lights as in not the word lights but what they are on the car so we're going to have a go through and just look at those to help you help your pupils so um things that i get told when i ask what is a dual carriageway 70 miles an hour two lanes like a motorway central barrier and others that just go i don't know but they've been on one they've spoken about one and often instructors we tend to talk about you know well we're going to work up to the dual carriageway and we talk about the big scary fast one because different is dangerous and you know we're, we're looking at where those risks are and so we focus on those things so sometimes the the defining it first is really important so most people's dual carriageway will look something like that uh, from pupils and instructors i get a lot of those different definitions it's the barrier in the middle to be clear um, because it doesn't have to have two lanes on either side the dual is the road um, it's the, it's a solid barrier it's something tangible not paint um, but you know that one that's the a21 i know what instructors are like sorry that's the a21 near seven lanes um i'll get asked later otherwise um but also there's this one this is um haze near bromley because there's two haze uh at least so this is a a little residential you know sort of not residential a uh, shopping area uh the street lights it's 30 miles an hour but it's got that barrier in the middle and at the end of the road there's this dual carriageway sign saying you know dual carriageway keep left so i love giving people this as an example of a dual carriageway to just challenge their understanding of things um i'm happy to pop these pictures they're straight off google maps um pop them in in the uh the group in case anybody wants them um but easy enough to find so having a look at dual carriageways and what they are will help people with their understanding for the questions junction now i i did a lesson on junctions with a pupil and and it made me realize how we make assumptions because we'd spent quite a long time going around something wasn't right but he was really good been with a couple of other instructors no real reason for changing there wasn't anything particularly wrong there so you know we were going around there's just something and I, somehow and i'm not saying it was quick 
it, I should have been quicker. Um, I got to the point where we realised he didn't know what a junction was. Um, so we sat uh, a lesson I've spoken about on other things before. Always happy to talk about it again, but uh, I drew an empty crossroads and got him to design junctions, and that helped him understand what it was. And that's something I've done with every pupil that I've ever taught since. Um, regarding the theory test, and I only realised this recently as as a definite as, as a rule. Junctions are emerging they're not turning in. That would be a side road. So I haven't yet come across something that's different from this. There's always the danger that I'm working off of the revision questions, not the actual questions on the test, because they won't let me see them. I have asked. Um, but yeah, a, a junction is emerging, is going going out onto the, the major road. Um, so it's just something to be aware of. I'm not saying necessarily change the way that you use the language. You could, um, but definitely making making the pupil aware of it so that they can. It gives them a head a heads up, a leg up um, on that those questions that say junction, because they'll get the right picture in their head, and that makes a big difference. Um, road versus lane. So here's here's a question for you. Um, you are taking the turning on the left. Where do you position? Middle of the road, left of the road, right of the road. If we then just change one word, and this is the question that I get driving instructors flagging up, being confused about most often and until this is pointed out. Um, but if we just change one word, we get middle of the lane, left of the lane right of the lane. So the correct answer for the road, I'm hoping you got this one right, is the left-hand side of the road. Middle would be on the white lines. Um, the road being from curb to curb all the way across. And the middle of the lane to turn left, lane being from paint to paint curb to paint, you know, that that side of things. So that's the difference that a word makes. Now, it's slightly confused when they talk about a country lane, but that's because it's it's one one width wide. Um, so that that is also something worth worth mentioning and covering. Um, and and then we've got got the lights on the car. Now, this is something that I find quite difficult to explain and often rope in the practical instructor who, who's referred the pupil to me for the theory uh, or get them to go out and look with the parents and have a look at the cars because photos don't do it justice um, showing what different lights on a car do. However, there is a useful shorthand which I find really helps with the theory test. So, DVSA tends to refer to side lights. They do occasionally refer to parking lights, um, but I will call them parking lights. I'll make sure that they know side lights equals parking lights. The reason for that is the question will say, you are parking. If it's a question about parking, it will be the parking lights. I accept that in the real world, lots of cars now have you know specific parking lights, um, but I, I'm not afraid to say, I'm happy to focus on the theory and let the rest of it, you know, rest in the hands of, of all of the practical instructors out there, because sometimes it's easier not to complicate things. Um, 
when, when the when the theory becomes more more valid um, and we and we improve it, I, I might change that view. Dipped headlights. This really confuses uh, some people, and I, th- I think it's because historically, you know, it was we dipped headlights when people were coming the other way, and now we drive on the dipped headlights. But they are driving lights. So the question will say, you are driving. Then I'm not bothered about the rest of the question, particularly if it's about lights, it'll be dipped headlights. Full or main beam drives me mad that they use both. Um, If they could just stick to one, life would be a little bit easier because it brings in confusion. Full or main beam, blinding lights, because that's what they're going to be asking about. Uh, if if it's a question on the theory test, it will be about the danger of them, not the benefits of them. Um, so it would be focused on that danger. Uh, fog lights, we're going to call those fog lights, um, but we're going to define the fact that they are less than 100 metres is fog. Um, so sometimes the answer can be misleading because of that. It will you know, say it's fog lights, but it will have said it's it's not less than 100 metres. Um, but yeah, no, we've got a good name when it comes to fog lights. I'll stick with that one. So hopefully those different words are going to help. Um, you know, if you can start integrating them into what you're doing in the car again, I'm not saying change the words necessarily. I'm saying try and build it in. So so they have that understanding. The theory will get a lot easier. Um, Their understanding will improve. And if we improve understanding, we're going to close that gap up to the pass mark and beyond. I'm all for a 50, you know, 50 out of 50 pass. Absolutely. But when you have people coming coming to you that have failed double digit times, 23 is the most that I've had. Um, Interestingly, 23 was someone who then said, no, I'm just going to take it again because I don't want to pay for training. Um, but you know, it's not unusual for me to be working with someone who is in double digits. Um, we, we, we don't always get there first time because sometimes there's a lot to unpick, but we improve things and then they pass generally speaking. Could I just do one more? There you a go. Hint. Just a hint. No, it's fine. We're there. It's all good. So if anyone wants to get in touch about any of those things on the screen, um, theory training, part one training, uh, part three standards check stuff, uh, my grade A course, which is two hours focus on the standards check, which um, Terry, in one word, how would you define it? Good. There we go. Uh, it's good. Um, so uh, I also do business coaching for driving schools, driving instructors um, and business development for them. So any of that stuff, happy to talk about it. Uh, or if you want to know how to write a kid's book, I'll chat about that as well. Thank you. Before you come off that screen where it says I've seen on ITV News, BBC News, Sky News, I want that seen or heard on the Instructor Podcast on the next time. That needs to be I on ne- there as well. I nearly added it as well, but I didn't want to Im- increase your ego any further because I love um, you already. Uh, just with regards to the words thing, um, the, the the different words for the same thing, basically, is that similar to someone referring to a meganar as a webinar and a broadcast and a live and a stream? That kind of annoyance. Possibly. Yeah. It, 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 it's to get a solution, isn't it? So, you know, if people listen to listen to the solution, then it can't be a bad thing. Well, uh, thank you for joining us, Chris. Uh, always a pleasure, pleasure to have you on. And obviously, when I was thinking theory, there was only one person I could come to, uh, but Annie wasn't available. So, no. 
God love Annie. Lives on TikTok. Um, yeah, I, I tune in. Oh, I tell all of my pupils, though, they have to go on there and say, do you know Chris Benstick? Because it really winds her up. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm going to kick you off because uh, we've got two more to get through. Uh, so let's do that. And then we can bring in the next uh, wonderful person. Now, this keep referring to people as wonderful humans. Uh, oh, look at that. Laura Strain. No messing there. She's straightened everyone else. There was a big delay. And it was taking like a minute to come in, and but there's no messing. She was like, bang, straight in. Uh, this is the kind of time and efficiency we need that I'm now just messing about and wasting. Uh, Laura is the latest person to uh, have a show on the Instructor Podcast Premium. And we are two hours, 45 minutes into Omega now. And that's the first time I've mentioned my premium content. That must be a, a record. But either way, are we good to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I need to share my screen. Go for it. Uh, we'll make sure that's working before I disappear. Oh, you know, I had a problem with this last time. You might have to show me how. <laughs> no Sorry, guys. Don't apologise, Jeepers. Um, five seconds we've been waiting. That's hardly a chore. Um, <laughs> so why I had to get Bob Morton on 20 minutes for our side recording to make sure his technical snafus were dealt with beforehand. Um, but while you are sorting that out, I will just say that we obviously are running a bit late because 8.45 uh, was supposed to be the time that uh, Lee Jowett uh, of Kit uh, was joining us. But you can see it's 8.45 and we're now joined by Laura, uh, as you can see, is doing it for the socials. Uh, so Kit is to come. So I'm going to disappear. I'm going to let you crack on. You've got about 20 minutes. If you're running over, I'll jump on and give you a nudge with uh, my... Uh, my uh, shiny nonce. Oh, oh, Terry. <laughs> okay, hi guys. Um, I don't think a lot of you know me, but first of all, I should say that I do have a bit of a problem with sticking to timescales. So, Terry, please do cut me off. Um, I will give you my slides. I think I can add that into the Facebook group, can't I? So, my name is Laura. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a social media manager, and I have been doing social media management specifically in this industry for probably about three and a half years. I'm also training to be a driving instructor, so a woman of many half talents. Um, very passionate about social media and its positive use for marketing, especially for us. So, what I'm going to talk to you about today is why I think it's a great. Um, a great tool for marketing and just a little bit about how to start. So I'm sure lots of you are at different places with social media. Some of you probably hate it. Some of you love it. Some of you might even be better at it than me, which isn't a massive surprise. Um, but I think it's great and I think it's worth all of us starting and I think it's worth all of us starting now. So first, of all, I'm going to give you some stats because that makes me look clever. And then I'm going to talk to you about how we do what we do. Okay, so in the UK, I find this absolutely astounding. 57.1 million people in the UK use social media regularly. So that's 84.4% of the population. Now, the reason why I think for people like us, it's a really great marketing tool is because nearly half of the people that use social media in this country are aged 16 to 35. So I'd argue that that's our key demographic. And nearly half of those people... So you're still talking, you know, 20 million people specifically use social social media to find new services or products. That's us. We are services. We are products. So what does that mean for you? 
Now, I've talked to Terry about this a little bit, and it is a bit of a sidebar, but I think it's worth mentioning that what I love about social media, especially for people in this industry, is that I think being a driving instructor, feedback I have is that it can sometimes feel quite lonely. And um, when you are active on social media, as I am, what you find is that you tend to build kind of a community of other people, like-minded people, especially when it comes to things like CPD, who you can communicate with, you can bounce ideas off, you can rant about your bad day. You know, I know that there are some some Facebook groups on here where there is some negativity, but I'm talking about people that you connect with. So, for example, Terry, I met through social media. Um, some of the people who are helping me on my PDI training and have been absolutely amazing, I only know them because I met them on Instagram. So I think that's a really positive thing. And also access to CPD like this. This is all run on social media. Well done, Terry. Thanks for backing up my point. Um, But the predominant thing for you guys is that social media marketing means your next student at your fingertips, which is what you want. I know that everybody's busy right now, but we've all talked about it. We know that it's not always going to be this way. So how do we use social media to benefit us and to drive sales and get students? I'm talking to you guys kind of as if you haven't started yet. So forgive me because some of you might know this already, but I understand that it can seem super overwhelming when you're starting out. So I'm going to give you some reminders and then I'm going to give you a really solid way to start a foundation for a great social media presence. First of all, start small. You don't need to think about the fact that you've got no followers and that you're meant to have a thousand. You don't need to expect to suddenly be getting contacted by students in the next three months for lessons. You are starting. And if you start thinking too big, you become overwhelmed and you won't do it. Second of all, and this is a really important one. You don't need to understand the algorithm. The algorithms, A, it's always changing. B, it's different for every platform. See, I don't even get it. And I sometimes, I mean, I'm a bit of a geek about it, I admit, but sometimes I'll be reading about it till midnight and I'm like, I've got no idea still what I'm supposed to do. The upshot is that the algorithm just wants you and the people viewing your content to stay on their app for as long as possible. That's it. So that's why they do things like trending sounds, because if you put a video to a trending sound, you have to do that within the app itself, which means that you're in that for longer. That's why they promote trending sounds because they know that you've been editing it in the app, so you've been on the app for longer and therefore people were more likely to view it. You don't need to understand that, you just need to focus on creating content that reflects you best. Um, this has been something that somebody, I'm sorry, I can't remember who told, but somebody's already said this and I've already said it. Start now while you're busy. The best thing about what we, I say we, you do is you are your content you are your brand you are what you are selling so if you're busy and you have test passes and you have really amazing teachable moments or a moment in the car with a student where they've had a breakthrough that's all content that's all displaying why you're good at what you do that's content and nowadays I think you know obviously you have to ask permission from your student but nowadays that's not a problem people are quite happy to be on Um, other people's social media especially when it's someone who they've developed a relationship with obviously ask permission but the fact is you just need to get used to the idea that you are the content and while you're busy you've got that content for days so the other thing you have to think about is you're not competing against other bigger accounts when I first started doing social media in this way 
I think the company that I was working with was one of a handful of companies that really wanted to grow their social media presence and YouTube presence to a point where they would monetize. Now, there's a lot of really amazing driving schools out there that are doing their stuff on YouTube and TikTok and monetizing from it. But I cannot explain to you the work involved in that. And that's like a whole nother job in itself. If that's what you want to do, that's fantastic because there's always there's always room for new people. But that's not what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to do is start your brand and get you into a position where people remember you and they want to work with you. So we have to have a strategy. If we don't have a strategy, then we don't do it because it all becomes overwhelming. The most important thing about a strategy is making sure that it's manageable for you and that it works for you. So consistency is key. And what I mean by consistency is not showing up every single day. What I mean is thinking about your time limits, your budget, what you think is doable for you without becoming overwhelming or you just stopping it altogether. I think a lot of people really go by like the three three days a week full, so on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday to start off with until they kind of build it into their day. But there's no point in starting with, oh, my gosh, I have to post every single day, two, three, four, five times a day because it's too much. And then, you know, wherever you get in that content from, you haven't built a catalogue yet. So when you're building your strategy, the important things to think about are why are you doing this? what channels you're using, what are you saying, and who is listening. So getting started, the most important thing is to think about your why. Why are you using social media? What do you want out of this particular type of marketing? Are you looking to build brand awareness? Are you looking to generate sales or um, pick up new students? Do you want to build relationships? Do you want to capture data from your chosen demographic? What is it that you want? I imagine that um with driving instructors it's kind of across the board building brand awareness you know generating leads um building relationships but you need to be clear about what it is that you want to do because that will dictate what kind of thing you post so let's say that you've gone away and you've had to think about what it is that you want to gain from using social media marketing now we need to think about the platform that we want to use so i have this argument with people all the time <laughs> Just listen to me when I say this. Facebook is the most used social media platform in England in 2023. But it is not the most used platform in 2023 for our target audience. Facebook is more likely to be used by over 35 year olds than any other demographic. It's something like between 35 and 65. And there's like a new wave of people over 70 using Facebook. That's great. That's wonderful. But that's not who we're trying to sell driving lessons to. So the two platforms at this moment in time in 2023 that are most used by 16 to 35 year olds are Instagram and TikTok. Now, I like TikTok. I think it's got a really good place. I think it's very kind of clickbaity. You can find yourself spending hours on it. I think there's some really great schools out there doing some really great TikTok. But in terms of you trying to generate leads, I think it's quite a tricky um, platform to navigate because a lot of it is video content. They are in the process of um, introducing photo-only content, but that isn't happening across the board yet. And I do think, even I find it quite tricky to navigate. If you're quite new to using social media marketing, I think we start with Instagram because 
Instagram is really, really great. It's got it's got lots of different options for you in terms of posting. So you can do what's most comfortable for you. But also you can actually link your Facebook and your Instagram because they're both owned by Meta, which means that what you post on Instagram automatically goes to Facebook and suddenly you're managing two platforms. So let's focus on Instagram only because it is the right demographic for us. But you decide you are the one who is running your business you decide what platforms you want to use. But what we recommend you do is you do a mission statement for whatever platform it is that you choose to use. So I'm just going to give you an example of Instagram. And the reason we do this is because it just keeps you on track. It just keeps reminding you about why you're doing this. So I will use, I've given an example of Instagram, two, I've given an example of post expert tips and test results in order to encourage people to use my driving school in the future. So once you've thought about why you're doing this, what you're trying, what message you're trying to give and who you're trying to sell it to and what platform you are going to use, give yourself a mission statement. And it's just a reminder that this is why I'm doing this and this is what I want to get out of it. What that also does is it makes it measurable. I'm not going to go into that here because I could talk to you about that for years about insights and everything. But please, by all means, get in touch with me if you want any help on understanding insights and understanding how to work out whether something's working. OK, so to recap, we know why we why we're using this particular platform. We know what we want to sell. We know who we want to sell it to. We know our mission statement. Now it's about how we do that. So you need to think about your brand's characteristics. And I know that I've just mentioned this earlier, but the thing that I love about social media marketing for driving instructors is more often than not, your brand is you. Even when you are a franchisee of a larger brand, you know, you're still selling your services. So you're selling who you are and how you teach. So what I love about it is it's, just, it's already personal and people love personal that marketing is, used to always be so kind of, contrived and I know that there is still a lot of that on on all platforms but the personal element is a whole new wave of understanding who I am and for you guys when someone's deciding whether or not they want to spend two hours a week in a car with you and give you loads of money that's a really great thing to have so if your brand was a person or they kind of are already what would their three main characteristics be so I did mention this when I was talking to Terry recently. I don't know if that one's been aired yet. I can't remember because I've spoken to him so many times. <laughs> God, I'm so bored. I'm joking. Um, ask people around you what your three main characteristics would be. So ask friends. Don't ask spouses or partners because they have to be nice. Don't ask children. Don't ask parents. Ask people who have chosen to be your friends what it is about you that makes them want to be your friend. Ask them to give them to give you the three things that they like most about you. And what you will probably find is that people say very similar things. So that is the person you are. That is then your brand. So now we know what your brand is. We need to turn that into something that people can see. So we need to look at your profile. Now, I don't know if you've got an Instagram profile or a Facebook or a TikTok or anything, but this can be used across the board. I'm just going again with your Instagram because that's kind of much more easy to, to analyze. So if you have an Instagram profile already, I want you to look at that profile. Not now, because you wouldn't be able to watch me if you did. Um, do you have a clear profile picture? So your profile picture should be your logo or it should be a very clear picture of you reflecting who you are so smiling don't be scowling or shouting that's yeah that no one's going to want to work with someone like that 
Um, is your bio really you? So does your bio, it's 150 characters. So does your bio say, driving instructor, South London? Okay, cool, there's loads of them. What makes you special? It could be a driving instructor, 15 years, grey day, based in Peckham with the best laugh you've ever heard. That becomes more personal. That shows people that you are a human being because these people are going to be nervous. They're going to be anxious. They're going to be spending lots of money. They want to know that they that they want to spend time with you. Do you have a call to action? So for those of you who don't know, a call to action is simply you telling them to do something. So um, I can't remember the percentages now, but as human beings, we quite often will passively do something because it's something's telling us to. So on your bio, if you have click the link below to get in touch or click the link below to my link tree or my YouTube or my lesson prices, we'll automatically do that. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a sale, but it does mean that someone is interacting more with your content, which is really great. So then what do your first nine pictures say about you? So when you think of a mobile phone, it's pretty much the same with Instagram and TikTok. Your screen, what comes into your screen when you scroll down is your first nine pictures. So if you were to look at that, would those pictures reflect who you are and what you're capable of? So with that in mind, I was dubious about whether or not, I, I know I'm running short on time, about whether or not I've, um, I was going to share this with you because it's a little bit complicated. But I'm just going to give you a very quick run through of this. This is very, very commonly used by marketers across the world. If you want to look into it, you can Google it. You don't need me to do it for you. Um, but the No Light Trust Funnel, some of you might have heard of it. It's basically, it's essentially how people are funneled into buying your services. Um, you're something like seven to 13 touch points away from somebody purchasing from you or buying into you as a brand. And a touch point is literally like you're on Facebook and you're scrolling down and you see a post or an advert from somebody, you stop. That's that's one touch point. Then they might do that again the next day on another one of your pictures. Then they might go into your profile and click on your profile picture. Every one of those things is a touch point. And what happens is, is that essentially as they go through these touch points, they go through this funnel. So first of all, they need to know you. Who are you? What do you do? And why should they care? So you're a driving instructor. You're based here. This person's sister is learning to drive. Okay, they know who you are. Yeah, okay, I know somebody loosely who's learning to drive or I'm going to be learning to drive in a couple of years. So cool, maybe I'm interested. But do I like you? Are you somebody that I can imagine having a cup of tea with? Do I want to sit in a car with you for two hours every week? Is there something that I can relate to you about? Okay, yeah, you're quite funny. You like cats. You like long walks. I like all those things too. So I know you're a driving instructor. I know that it's something a, a potentially a service that I'm going to or someone I know who's going to use soon. And you seem like somebody that I would get on with. That's all great. But are you an expert and have other people had success with you? That's where things like your past pictures come in. Okay, so I know what you do. I know I like you. And I can see in front of me that people are passing their driving test thanks to you. That is when people start buying into who you are, your brands and your services. I have no idea how I'm doing for time, by the way, Terry. <laughs> okay, so again, just to recap, we know um, why we're doing it. We know who we're selling it to. We know what platform we're using. We've got our mission statement. We understand ourselves as a brand and we understand what we have to do to get people engaged. So make a plan. Choose four to six categories that cover the no like trust funnel. And how you have to think about is this. So if I'm going to pass a post picture, uh, post a past picture even that covers two of those categories because 
I'm showing that I have got someone through a driving test. So they know what I do. And I have been responsible for them passing. They trust that I'm an expert. And then it's things like funny stories. They like me. Reviews, they trust me. Um, Again, they know what I'm doing. So think about different things that can cover all of those aspects of the no like trust funnel and start every single day every time something happens when you have a lesson that has a really good teaching moment somehow capture it even if you turn it into a text post if you have um someone on test and you've gone for a coffee add it film it film yourself having a coffee or take a picture of it that that is all content so long as it is hitting the no like trust funnel it's perfect so on instagram you have various different ways of posting stories cut well you've got stories on facebook instagram on everything these days stories are great do a story as and when you can and it doesn't have to be anything in particular if i find a song i like i put it on a story if i have had a long day i put it on a story because it's kind of like saying to somebody hey this is something that i'm experiencing this is something that i've just found and i want you to enjoy that with me in real time and people love that because they feel like they're part of something that you're part of there and then Static or standard posts, not just past pics, because there are lots of people out there that just post past pics. That's great. I can see that people pass tests with you, but I don't know who you are. And I don't know if I would want to spend time with you in a car. Carousels are just static posts, but there's multiple of them. And the reason that these are really good is because back to the algorithm, it makes people spend a long time on the on the platform and therefore they'll stick around and therefore they'll promote it. And short form, the dreaded video content this stuff sells you don't have to have a face in it but you probably should it's not easy if anybody wants to talk to me about that on a different day I'm happy to give you some tips but it sells and it really really covers everything that you needed to cover in terms of people getting to know who you are okay I'm actually winding up I still have no idea how how long I've been talking for but I'm nearly there okay perfect um okay so when should you post? You should post daily, should. But as I said before, you need to do what works for you. You need to take into consideration the time you have every day and the budget you have in terms of how you're going to do it and also the content that you have. The best thing to do is think of things as content, take the picture, keep it and use it when you can. You don't have to take a picture and use it on that day. You can build a catalogue. I would recommend starting out posting three times a week, as many stories as you can, and then build up. But you need to do what is comfortable for you because I'm not you. You know what time and capacity you have. The most important message is just give it a go. It is an amazing tool. It is, I've seen it work. I've seen it work so many times in this industry where we started with 100 followers and now you've got 1,600 followers and people messaging left, right and centre asking for help. It's a great marketing tool. You just have to give it a go. One last thing is um, don't forget to engage with people. So if, you, if you're putting out great content, that's great. But again, the human element is when you're discussing it with people and when you're feeding back to people, interaction is really important as a part of getting across your personality. So, gosh, I talked so quickly then. I'm so sorry. These are some of the tools that I use regularly. Again, I will pass this um, to Terry to put on the thingamabob. That was really professional. <laughs> Um, but these are some things I use. They're really, really good tools. Canva is what I use to edit. Everything else is just kind of how I get my stats and how I understand what's going on. And this is where I can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp.
And shall I unshare, Terry? Go for it. Um, and I'm going to make one comment. Um, I'm trying not to, you know, add it out too much, but I'm going to make one comment, which is you mentioned about just starting. Uh, in April 2021, I started the Instructor Podcast. I started off with two episodes, Bob Morton and Amanda Lee, on the same day. In total, I think I got 30 downloads that day uh, from two episodes. Uh, today, I've had nearly 200 downloads, and there has been no episode. I'm off-season. So it just shows that, that just starting, you never know where it's going to take you. But anyway, I don't want to have more time on. But, you know, thank you, Laura. As you said, um, you can either send it to me or you can put it in the group yourself. Um Make sure you share where people can find you because, you know, anyone that needs anything social media related, definitely a good place to go. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Right. Well, I'm going to kick you out now. Okay, bye. <laughs> and I'm going to bring in the last speaker of the day. Um, so, uh, yeah, big thank you to Laura there again. She's more in our industry than some that have, I've mentioned this about before, but, you know, she's not a driving instructor. She's, you know, yet that will be next year. Um, but it's, again, nice to have these people coming in that um, are willing to give their time again. So I, I just think that's a, a really good place to be. Um, and we're now joined. Oh, rhyming with B. We're now joined by Lee. How good was that? That wasn't even planned. <laughs> Um, Lee, you were due to start uh, 25 minutes ago. What's going on? I know. It's almost like I need a time machine, Terry. Only I had one. When when I had you and Mick on the podcast, uh, Mick were complaining about your punctuality. So, you know. Yeah, it's my fault. Definitely, Definitely my fault. Um, so you've got about a minute to do this. Uh, no, you... Uh, <laughs> um, honestly, I don't care how long you take now. It's all the last one. If you want to run over, you can run over. Um, all right, do you want to check um, that you can share your screen? Okay? Yeah, let me try that. Uh, where are we? And uh, when that's up and running, I'll disappear. You've got about 20 minutes to go for it. And then uh, if you're running over a little bit, I'll come and give you a bit of a nudge. But um, but yeah, uh, looking forward to this one. It's, in fact, just while you're getting that set up, I'm going to take an opportunity to thank everyone that's that's been on so far. It's been a pleasure to have so many people coming along, especially, and I shouldn't say this because I'm talking to someone within the industry, and I keep saying this, but especially the people from outside the industry i think that there's less in it for them if that makes sense so you know big thank you to you guys for coming along and also thank you for you guys to turn up i was just doing some maths and over three hours we've been on and we've held 80 percent of the audience uh which i just think is a massive credit to you and it shows how invested you are in your cpd uh which is a great position to be in um are we okay there, Lee? Can we? <laughs> no, I'm not finding my presentation. It's not in my share screen options. Well, that, that's Let not a good thing. Of, uh, uh, I must admit, there was a point with Bob Morton where we discussed me uh, in t doing a physical interpretation using dance of his presentation. Okay. Um, if you need if you me to do that, that, I can that do roundabout. Superb, yeah. Um, oh, don't, don't do roundabouts. Everyone does roundabouts on standards checks. Um, yep. Uh, right, let me give me a sec. No problem. Uh, um, while you're doing that, I will say what I was going to say at the end of the show, um, which is tomorrow I'm going to put up 
a uh, oh, what do you call it? Uh, a feedback form in the group, uh, so that anyone that's watched this uh, can go back and leave some feedback. I want feedback. I want to know what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, I want to know who you liked. I don't want to know who you didn't like because that would be rude. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll finish this off in a minute because we now have lift off. We're ready to go back to the future. So I will disappear. Just give um, us a sec. Um, just make sure that um, everyone's seeing what they should be seeing. Um, you can see Mick Knowles humping you. Yeah, he does that a lot. I don't know why. <laughs> so, are you just seeing the screen? Yep. Yeah, with Mick Knowles humping me. With Mick Knowles humping you. Absolutely superb. So I will disappear. I'll go on mute. Um, I'll still be watching, but if um, uh, I'll, 20 minutes or so, and then I'll, I'll jump on if, if you're running over a bit much. No worries. No worries. Hopefully it won't. So everyone can finally get on the way. Okie dokie. Okay. So hello to everybody. Sorry that we're running over a little bit, but I hope this is, uh, this is worthwhile. We are knowledgeable instructor training and tonight we are taking you back to the future we are taking you back to the origins of client-centered learning uh, we're taking you back to a time before covid we're taking you back to where the origins of client-centered learning were founded we're taking you back to a time when safe driving for life precluded dvsa's ready to pass campaign so it's time to go back. But first, let's have a look at the present day. So we start back in good old 2023. And we start with DVSA's ready to pass campaign, focused on making sure that our pupils are ready to pass their driving test, making sure that we know that our pupils need to be ready to pass their driving test. We also consider a six-month waiting time for driving tests. Oh, it's terrible at the minute. Nobody can get a test. If you've got a test and you're not ready for it, then you're looking at putting it back or paying extra money to get a test that is suitable to when you might be ready. We've also got the dreaded trigger system, DVSA's tip program that ADIs and PDIs alike are now on and monitored against our test results. Feels like that a lot sometimes. Um, we've got issues with ADI tests and the fact that they have to go on hold. So PDIs struggling for part twos and part threes in addition to six months waiting times for driving tests. What that's leading to at the minute is a test-focused industry. Everything within our industry currently feels like it's focused to tests. So are you ready to go back? Let's go back. Let's get out of good old 2023. So we're going back to the future. We're going to a place where, well, actually, where are we going? We actually don't need roads. 
what we need though is research. We're going to go back and have a look at the research that went into client-centered learning. Research that actually seems to have been largely forgotten currently um, with all of the focus to test. It's easily forgotten that actually our focus should be on the pupil, the client-centered learning, and the benefits of that um, to our pupils driving post-test. So if we go back first to 2014, the 7th of April 2014 specifically, that was the date that the standards check replaced the old check test. For having to go back nine years now from the check test to when client-centered learning was actually brought into the um the way in which driving instructors are assessed. It's often felt by driving instructors that this change happened overnight, that DVSA just woke up in the morning and decided to mess with um, what we did back then and what they did back then and the way in which they needed to do it. Um, but actually, the origins go back, and we must go back even further from 2014. If we go back to 2011, that was the year in which the National Standards for Driver and Rider Trainers were published. They're actually published on the 31st of October. So whilst all of this currently is a nightmare for driving instructors, the date in which the DVSA published the National Standards for Driver and Rider Trainers, which are the origins of the standards check and the competencies um, well, they were actually published on Halloween in 2011. But in order to understand the origins of the National Standards for Driver and Rider Training and the implementation of client-centered learning, then we must go back even further. We must go back to the good old days of 2005 where the Merit Report, or sorry, the Merit Project was published. So merit was the minimum requirement for driving instructor training. That basically um, was a report which suggested that the way in which driving instructors, PDIs, are trained to be ADIs needed to change. And this goes all the way back to 2005. It looked at how best to develop driving instructor training, and it took the view that driving instructor training needed to look at the goals for driver education matrix with a top-down approach in order to create safer drivers. Drivers who were trained around the contributory factors in collisions. So now we need to go back even further because if we're going to find the, um, the contributory factors into the goals for driver education matrix. Now we need to go back all the way back to 1999. And great Scott, there is our great Scott, Mr. Stuart Lockery, a good friend of ours who is a advocate, a big advocate of the goals for driver education matrix. He didn't actually invent it, but he is a big advocate of it. And he's a great Scott, so let's go with that. Um, the matrix is 
widely accepted to contain all the elements of training required to create safe and competent drivers. And it's the framework with which we need to deliver our training as trainers to driving instructors and PDIs and with which they need to then deliver their training to pupils in order for them to create drivers that are more self-aware, that understand their own risk-increasing factors and go beyond just simply um, understanding the need to control a vehicle and navigate through traffic. So that surely must be it. We're going back that far. It's 24 years. But no, we must go back further. We must go back further to understand the origins of the GDE matrix. Where did that come from? The matrix itself was formed in 1999 by Hataka et al. But we must travel all the way back further to 1980. Travel all the way back to 1980 with a short pit stop in 1996. The origins of the GDE matrix lie in the theory of internal models of driving behavior. So this was this was created, this theory, by Mikkonen and Keskinen in 1980, and it was updated in 1996. So that's a hell of a lot of going back that we've done to understand exactly where client-centered learning and its origins were formed. Mm. It's your kids. Something has got to be done about our kids. Well, this is um, this is research into killed and seriously injured collisions. I've got three graphs, so I'll put all of them up on screen. And again, um, these slides will be available if anyone wants a copy of the slides to look into this in a bit more detail. Uh, I will pass these slides on to Terry and you can ask him for them and he will pass them on to you. But what we know... And the reason why something has to be done about our kids is that young male drivers, if we look at the graph on the left, are involved in far more killed or seriously injured collisions than any other gender or age group. It's the big, long, light green line that you can see. It's 17 to 24-year-old males. That being said, young female drivers are coming in second. So the second most uh, involved age group a demographic in KSIs is actually young females. If we look at graph number two and the type of roads, it's still rural roads. They're still uh, the carriageway where most young drivers are likely to die. And when you look at other drivers, which would include older drivers, um, actually it's the other way around for them. It's not rural roads for them. And then the final graph on the right, or the table on the right, looks at the contributory factors. So what we know is that young drivers, male and female, are involved in the most killed or seriously injured collisions, typically on rural roads, where the figures for driving carelessly or recklessly and loss of control are significantly higher in young drivers than other drivers. So again, we go back to the future, but I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. Your kids are going to love it. 
Client-centered learning is commonplace through education. What that means for us is that the next generation of new drivers, drivers that we are training to become safe and competent, they'll be they'll be familiar with models that are goal-focused and focused around goal-focused learning models, such as the GROW model. They'll be familiar with scaling and reflective practices. So scaling models such as knowledgeable instructor trainings on smooth scaling model. And they will be used to problem solving and they will be used to answering questions that raise their awareness. And to help us all do that, we have our own questioning techniques ebook. So these three coaching skills ebooks, I'll happily send to anyone who would like a copy. So my email will be on the closing slide. If you take a copy of my email and send me an email, I will gladly send you all three of those ebooks completely free of charge for attending this webinar and staying late for us. Uh, we appreciate it. But we need to go back to the DeLorean because we're heading now for yet another year. So if my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88, well, actually, 1989, it's as close as we could get it. But there's a theory around the ways in which adults learn, and it's different, really. It's largely different to the theories of the way in which children learn things. The theory of adult learning was developed all the way back from 1968 um, to around 1989. It was developed by a, an American educator called uh, Malcolm Knowles. He's actually the younger brother of my business partner, Mick, Mick Knowles. Um, and there he is just on the left. He developed the theory of andragogy, which is the theory of adult learning. It's considered that adults are emerging from childhood at around the ages of 18 to 29, which fits massively within the demographic that we typically teach. We may start with um, teaching people around the age of 17, but by the time at least they've got the test and the test is passed, they're you know, becoming 18 to 29, we will typically teach people from the age of 17 to around 30 would be our probably our biggest market. Um, I haven't got time, I don't think, to run through this in, in very much detail. But again, you can get a copy of these slides um, and you can have a read through them. But there are various different assumptions and principles around the, the ways in which the adult learns. Um, children, for example, will typically go to school because they're told to do so. Um, children will sit and take in information and knowledge with no um, immediate need for the information. Um, children will take on board what they're told and they will just take it on board and, and accept that that is the case. None of that is really true for adults. In terms of adults, um, adults prefer more of a sense of self-control and direction of the learning that they're taking. Um, adults are more goal-orientated, so 
we need a focus in in uh, around in which the ways in which we're going to learn. But also, we need to there needs to be an importance, uh, more of an immediacy for an adult to go through a learning process. It needs to be um, personally relevant to us. We need to see the benefits of it in our lives in ways that children don't need. Um, we also, by the time we get to adulthood, you know, around the age of six years old, we've started to mirror and match um, what we're seeing. So when our pupils come to us by the age of 17, they've had 11 years at least of mirroring, seeing, copying, mimicking what they've seen others doing. By the age of about 12, we start to form opinions. So they've had about five years, if not more, of forming their own opinions on what it is that they're learning. They don't come to us as a blank canvas. Whereas when a child first goes to school, it's more a case of putting information into what is a blank canvas. So there's lots of different principles around in which the ways that adults learn. And we have to go all the way back to 1989 and even further to 1968 to see where those theories have been developed from. So we've got two models. The model on the left is a model called pedagogy, and the model on the right is andragogy. So the model on the left, pedagogy, is the, is the theory of childhood learning. It's theories around ways in which that children learn. And as I've said, it's widely accepted that ways in which children learn can be considered to be very different to ways in which adults learn. If we look at the model on the left of pedagogy, of childhood learning, then in the center of that lies the content. That would be the teacher or the driving instructor in our case. And if you look at which, in the ways in which the content goes out, in every sense, it goes outwards from the teacher, from the instructor to the learner. If we look at the ways in which it's widely accepted that adults learn, it's widely accepted that the best way for an adult to learn is to be in the center of the learning process with the content going outwards, but inwards also. It's a two-way stream of input from the learner out to the uh, educator and from the educator into the learner. Now, with that in mind, I think it's very fair to say that these models fit best in this way that the theory of which children learn is best suited or best fits within the way in which traditional instruction was given to the pupil and that the theories in which ways adults learn best is best suited to client-centered learning. Now, with that in mind, is it really surprising that so many young drivers are involved in collisions when traditionally We've been teaching young adults to drive as if we were teaching children. I think that's quite a uh, compelling argument for us as instructor trainers, as driving instructors, as PDIs, to look beyond the current state, to look beyond client-centered, sorry, <laughs> 
to look beyond ready to pass campaigns and to look beyond the focused test and understand the need and the importance to go back to the focus being around the pupil and client centered learning to forget the driving test and accept the fact that if we focus on the pupil and educate them in ways in which they're familiar with their own awareness, that they're familiar with taking control and responsibility for situations that they're used to reflecting on what they've done well and what they've not done well, then this will best fit a model for developing safer drivers for life rather than a model that just creates a driver that's ready to pass a driving test. So now we've just one last journey to make. We're going all the way back to good old 1833, where me and Mick were cowboy. I mean, Mick was born then. I wasn't actually born then, but Mick was. Um, but we go back to the time of cowboys and Indians, etc. cetera. Um, why are we going back to 1833? And why are we finishing in 1833? We finished there because... 1833 is actually the first documented use of the term andragogy. It was first documented by a German educator called Alexander Kapp. Um, so it was recognized all the way back in 1833 that the way in which adults learn is different to the way in which children learn. So you think a six-month waiting time is bad. It only took DVSA 2,172 months from the first documented use of the term andragogy to implement adult learning strategies and client-centered learning into driver training. And that's us. That's knowledgeable instructor training. We've took you back to the future in the hope that it helps you to recognize and understand the need for us to move past and see past the current trend of test-focused training and refocus ourselves on client-centered learning. Because everything, everything around education tells us that our demographic isn't test-focused. Our demographic needs to be, and we need to create safer drivers by way of making them more aware and self-aware of the risks that they take. There's our contact details. Below that is our website where you can find all the courses that we run. And that's the end. So when Terry's ready, you can all make like a tree and leave. Oh, don't go just yet. I've got a few words to say. <laughs> I just numbers, wanted to get the line in. <laughs> my numbers drop now. <laughs> um, I have an important question for you, though. If, if you could go back in time, would you change your spelling? My spelling? Knowledgeably. Or would you keep it? No, I'd keep it. I love it. It's, I mean, uh, it, 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 was, um, it was the entire reason for um, the name of the company being Farm, obviously, the first bit being McNoll's and the last bit being Lee Jowett um, and, and sort of um, them two. Um, impenetrable forces if that's a word joining together was it the uh, the immovable object versus the that's irresistible it. force yeah that's it dvsa versus us <laughs> um no <laughs> um 
I think he's got you a lot of engagement as well over the the, the months, so it's good. Um, but no, love that light. Fascinating. I think that um, I'm not going to analyse it now. I'm not going to analyse <laughs> any of these now. Uh, but no, love that. Thank you for coming along. Uh, really, really good way to wrap up with sort of an anal- analytical kind of side. And, and I will just say that I love how everyone's presentation has been very, very different. Um, and that has been a bit of a highlight for me. But uh, I'm not going to analyse it all now, so I am going to let you disappear because uh, I do appreciate the fact that you have come on later than we, we said because let's blame Bob, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, you come on later than we said and delivered a fantastic presentation, so thank you for that. Not a problem. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite, and uh, nice to see you, Terry. And you too. And that group is staying open for a few days, so feel free to share any links and stuff in there, uh, promote anything you want. So if anyone's enjoyed your stay, they can go and find you through that. Or just send it to me and I'll share it as well. Brilliant. Thank you. No problem. All right, I'm going to get rid of you. See you later. Excellent. So, you know, I'm just going to wrap up briefly. Uh, so so hang about for a minute or so, just while I'll give you a few pointers. So first of all, and I kind of touched on this before, but big thank you to everyone for turning up, mainly the speakers. Obviously, I think they've all been awesome. Uh, but also you guys, especially if you stayed all the way to the end. If you're a podcast listener and you get to the end of my podcast, you'll hear me refer to you as elite listeners because you've stayed all the way to the end. So my favorites, if you're all the way to the end of this, you are my favorite people now. So, you know, well done. Thank you. Uh, Also want to mention that I said it a couple of times to people that today was either going to be amazing or abysmal. It's been amazing. I've been really, really impressed with with the presentations. I mentioned it there. Uh, really thoroughly impressed with what everyone has done. I'm, at the minute, I can't pick a favourite. I'm looking forward to going back and watching them properly because obviously I've been distracted. So I'm really looking forward to going back and watching them properly. Uh, but yes, I, I've, I've loved this. I've loved the interaction with you guys. I've not been able to keep up with most of it. So I am going to go back through and check the the comments. I'll probably watch the video in full at some point and go back and, and, and look at a lot of the comments as well. So um, yeah, big thanks to you guys for that. And then the last two things, these are the two things I'm going to ask of you. Uh, These are my calls to action, uh, Laura, my calls to action. First of all, if you have enjoyed this overall, so you may not have enjoyed every single aspect, but if you've enjoyed this overall or gained benefit from it, do me a favor, go and shout about it. Either leave me a review, you can do that on my Facebook page, you can do that on my GMB listing, anything like that, uh, or just go and put a Facebook post or an Instagram post or a dot tweet or X, because we don't deal with that shit. Uh, but go and, you know, do that. Tag the Instructor Podcast in it. Raise a bit of awareness for me and say how awesome it is so all the people that didn't attend can start to feel sorry for themselves because you're the awesome folks that attended. And hopefully, I'm pretty certain, come away from these better instructors. So go and, uh, and, and you know, give me a little bit of love. But above that, Above everything, pick a couple of people you've enjoyed today. Pick a couple, if all of them, hopefully, but pick a couple, go and follow them on social media, go and leave them a review, go and give a a separate post where you're talking about what you learned from this one. Do that publicly. These guys have just given you their time for free, and I don't want to bang on about that too much, but they've just given you their time for free, including Lee that's just turned up at 9 o'clock at night to do this. Maybe they'll make the next one a bit earlier. Either way, um, so... 
go and give them some love, not just in the group. Now, please do it in the group, obviously. That's what the group's for. But go and do it publicly, raise some awareness around these guys, um, not just the folks in the industry, but the folks outside it as well. I'd really love that, and I'm sure they would as well. I think the last thing I'm going to mention just on that, uh, I haven't had a chance to watch all the comments, obviously. I have seen a through. There has been some nice ones, so thank you for that. Um, as Chris Benstead, in his wonderful way, stated, uh, sees, there's no certificates. If you want one, I'll charge you 25 quid and make one. I don't give a toss about certificates. And that's no offence to anyone that does. I immediately uh, had an image there of Lee Jowett and Mick Knowles holding there. Their, their mugs and the reward and, and everyone holding certificates. No offence to anyone that likes certificates. I don't give a toss. Uh, but if you want one, 25 quid. Sounds like a deal to me. Um, and yeah, so thanks. Um, I will get back to the comments. Um, there was something else I'm going to say that I can't remember. So I will leave it at that. Uh, thank you for that. The group's going to be open until Sunday, possibly Tuesday, depending on when I've got time. Uh, the, the full recording will go in my premium content. If you want to find out more about that, www.theinstructedpodcast.com or message me. 10 quid a month, you get a load of stuff like this, but not usually three and a half hours, usually 30 minutes. Um, and yeah, bye. I'm saying that, but I'm not ready to stop bloody sharing and stuff so it wasn't very dramatic was it i'll try again bye the instructor podcast with terry cook talking with leaders innovators experts and game changers about what drives them